Hey guys, welcome back again to another edition of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. We're up to episode 8 now. And Happy New Year, everyone! Irritate you enough, Steve? <laughs> no, it's all good, man. Happy uh, New Year. Of course, joining me as always, Mr. Steven Ekstad here to join the show. My co-host at all times. And uh, we're going to talk another two weeks of Nitro and Raw here in a minute. It's a couple days early. I know it's not New Year's quite yet, but this is the last Monday Warfare of 2020, so I just wanted to get that in here before we get going. And uh, we're kind of closing in on December here as well. On the grenade, we're we're uh, or we're not on the grenade. We're on Monday Warfare, excuse me. So we're in December in real life, in real time, and we're in December here in 1995 as well. Before we get going, though, with the another two weeks of each episode, I wanted to talk about some of the comings and goings more so the comings in both the wcw and the wwf i did some digging into the observer and some results and things like that i didn't realize how much influx of talent there was for both companies right around the turn of the year here just looking at wcw we know public enemies final show and ecw is coming up january 5th at the ecw arena the house party show so public enemy uh, about to make their debut with wcw here at the Clash of the Champions in January. WCW also, I'm sure as you know, Steve, making a big play for the AAA Lucha talent. Uh, since Conan's going to be coming in, he's going to be acting as the liaison to bring over as much Lucha talent as possible over to the WCW from the AAA. Also, Fit Finley from Europe on his way in. Everybody knows Finley now, but he was uh, a relative unknown in the United States back here in the mid-'90s. He's headed into the WCW. There was reports that the Bushwhackers were even supposed to be coming into WCW. They were going to be called just simply Luke and Butch from Down Under. Dave notes, if they meant anything, wouldn't Titan, which desperately needs anything, still use them? Of course, this doesn't even happen because, lo and behold, the Bushwhackers are still contracted to the WWF. I can't even imagine the Bushwhackers here in WCW in this era. <laughs> Dear God. I couldn't either. Holy cow. DeMeltz also reports, and I, I took an excerpt here. I wanted to read this. I had never heard this story before. If I had, it t totally escaped my mind. Uh, it's a really interesting story. There was a ton of controversy this week, says DeMeltz, regarding Nancy Sullivan, who is, uh, we, we know her better as woman here in the wrestling business. Mark Madden, and future announcer in WCW and longtime professional wrestling columnist, and as well as he did the hotline for quite a while, along with me and Gene Okerlund and WCW as well. Mark Madden reported on the WCW hotline that Nancy Sullivan would be leaving ECW for WCW and go under the name Elizabeth and manage the macho man Randy Savage. WCW actually taped over the message that Madden played, and there was tremendous heat on Mark Madden to the point his future with the company was questionable. And I believe, I think, in the future... Uh, editions of the observer it's noted that madden is actually fired and rehired within a matter of hours so it did piss bischoff off to some degree with kevin sullivan and nancy sullivan denying that she's leaving ecw kevin sullivan wanting to replace mark madden on the hotline himself or with paul orndorff a good buddy of kevin sullivan's Meltzer says that he can say for sure that there was a plan in wcw in serious discussion to bring nancy sullivan in uh, exactly how he can't say I thought it was really interesting that obviously they haven't made the deal with the actual Elizabeth, Miss Elizabeth, Elizabeth Hewlett, just yet. So it could be possible 
because we know woman comes in right around the same time as Elizabeth, really. Uh, maybe she was coming in to play a character named Elizabeth. It would have been very interesting had they went that route. Yeah, it's definitely uh, interesting to say the least. Holy, that'd be, di- that'd be different. Uh, I don't know how you could pull it off because everybody knows woman. I mean, a lot of the, uh, maybe new fans, but mo- the majority of WCW fans were probably watching WCW in 89, you know, when she came out and they would know right away that that's woman. I mean, come on. It's not like she's never been in the company before. So that kind of, I don't know how they make it. Well, work. we've seen, we've seen so many, so much talent over the years, not just cross uh, jump promotions and change gimmicks, but change gimmicks within the same company. So it's not like it's out, out of the uh, ordinary to see something like this happen. It's just a different era of wrestling. There's a seven year rule. There's turnover every seven years, supposedly in, in most of the, the, the fan base, so you can get away with that. Uh, although it's not necessarily seven years that yet since we saw a woman last in WCW. And let's not forget, she's been in ECW, so at least some fans are, are watching her right now. And, you know, as this is going on. So let's give credit to DeMelso. I mean, he's uh, very accurate in all of these names coming in. Conan, all of the Lucha talent on their way in, Public Enemy, Fit Finley, Elizabeth and woman wind up coming in. So the only team that, uh, that doesn't come in here is the Bushwhackers. Thank God. Uh, but of all those names, one name he doesn't mention is another female talent who makes the biggest impact of them all, at least short term, uh, before this episode of Monday Warfare concludes. And we'll get to that pretty soon. We move on over to Titanland and the WWF. Some of the names coming in over there for the World Wrestling Federation include Steve Austin who's currently uh, having a cup of coffee, cup of coffee in the ECW. And he'll be coming in reportedly as the ringmaster, the new million-dollar champion managed by Ted DiBiase. Kind of an interesting faction had it played out, had it worked for Ted DiBiase. I mean, the one, two, three kids, Sid, seem to be taking off. Then you have Steve Austin also. It's, it's a really a resurgent, resurgence for the million-dollar corporation. Had it worked. Uh, and, and everything worked out the way it possibly could have. Had Steve Austin got to be Steve Austin, had the Sid, had Sid and the kid stuck around, it would have been a lot better than corporate Tatanka, Kama, King Kong Bundy. Uh, it would have been a really an actual entertaining million-dollar corporation. Yeah, I agree. I think the stink was put on, and nobody really bought it, even though he was starting to get talent at the end of 95, into 96. The talent was definitely getting big, bigger and better as far as the million dollar corporation goes, but ninety five <laughs> the who's who trash in there, so I think the stink was on and nothing that they did with it was gonna get over. It was a little too late. Yeah, and I just want to run through a few more names here before we get going with the uh, next week of Nitro and Raw. Other names coming back in, we'll see Jeff Jarrett return. Uh very shortly Jeff Jarrett of course left the company in a huff in the middle of the in your house pay per view back in July. Him and the roadie both quit the company at the same time, feeling that they were forced to split up too early in the storyline. And uh, keeping it real was Jeff Jarrett. And the roadie had made friends with Jeff by that point, and they, they left together. They left town together. Off to the USWA, and here's Jarrett returning without the roadie. So <laughs> not necessarily strong friendships in the world of professional wrestling when money is involved. Uh, also, the headhunters. Uh, making a play to work for either the WWF or WCW. We'll actually see them come in as the uh, squat team uh, out of nowhere, out of the blue, to participate in the Royal Rumble here in 1996. Of course, the squat team, if you've never seen them before, two 400-pound twins who can actually fly. It's almost like if Abdullah the Butcher had wings. It's the best way I can describe these two. 
And uh, also, uh, with Smoky Mountain Wrestling folding just last month in November of 95, lots of names headed in, headed back to the company. Of course, the Heavenly Bodies had just taken off back to Smoky Mountain Wrestling back in the summer. Tom Pritchard on his way back. He's going to play a twin, I don't know about brother, but a twin body donna by the name of Zip, or as Dave Meltzer claims, it's going to be Flip here in December of 95. We wind up knowing Tom Pritchard as Zip. So Tom Pritchard on his way back. If you guys are wondering why Jimmy Del Rey isn't back, he's not welcome back. He, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way from uh, all the stories I've heard anyway. Also coming in, the former Boo Bradley in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He'll be coming in as Santa Claus from the South Pole, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that. And also another big name, one of the main eventers in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Nature Boy Buddy Landell going to get a shot here. In the WWF, we'll talk about the rise and fall of the Buddy Landell shot. It's 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 in and out for Buddy Landell, and we'll discuss that too here in a little bit. And some of the big names rumored for the Royal Rumble are names like Jake the Snake Roberts, Vader, and the Ultimate Warrior. So those are names we're going to be batting around here. We're going to be discussing in the next couple episodes of Monday Warfare. And just any of those names really stick out to you? Uh, I mean, obviously, Ultimate Warrior, Jake, and Vader. Jarrett coming back. Uh, as a kid, I never really noticed that he was gone. Uh, if that tells you anything, it was kind of cool to see him come back. Uh, I always thought he was decent. I don't think he was ever worthy of <laughs> main event status or things right. like that. I don't think he was. I can't remember who said it. Somebody said he smashed like 4,500 guitars in his career and drew no money. Uh, I can't remember who it was. Uh, that's kind of how I feel about Jarrett. Again, he's not terrible, but it was cool to see him come back. That's really about it, to be honest with you. Of course, the WCW guys, the Luchadors, that's always intriguing. I can't wait to get those guys in and talk about them and just see these Cruiserweight matches. They were so far ahead of their time and different for this era. And um, obviously, it's one of those things that people remember fondly of the Monday Night War. It's one of those things that always gets brought up, and uh, I can't wait to watch them. So. And we're going to kick things off with the weekend, or excuse me, the week, the Monday of December 11th, 1995, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina at the and, uh, WCW Monday Nitro in front of 4,500 fans, 3,900 paid. So doing a little better than usual here as far as uh, payday goes in the house. We kick off the show. It's Pepe and Mongo in leather tonight. And I don't know why I keep taking notes on that, but I guess I'm just waiting to see when it falls off. I want to know when Pepe disappears. And uh, they get cut off abruptly with a bell as Eric Bischoff's talking because there's a match in the ring. Eddie Guerrero and JL, Jerry Lynn, already in the ring getting ready to wrestle as Nitro kicks off. And so neither guy gets an introduction, no ring introduction, no announcement. And I'm torn, Steve. I like the fact that they throw to action like 90 seconds into the show, but I feel it was done without fanfare for the two guys in the ring, almost like they're an afterthought. Uh, what, what did you think? Did you, did you like the fact that we went straight into action? Or did you think these guys at least deserved an announcement of their names? while they were standing in the ring. I, I don't know. I'm torn. Yeah, it's cool. You know, you get right into the action. Not a lot of talk. Um, as we know, Raw, like, becomes formulaic, and, you you know, the show starts, and it's usually some stupid 25-minute segment of in-ring in ring talking, and it takes a minute to get to that action. So I, I, they're switching it up a little bit, and it's going right to the action. They don't want to hear talking, that, that sort of deal. But I'm with you. Like, my notes here is, like, they don't even give these guys a proper entrance. I could see, you know, maybe not letting them come down to the ring if you got to squeeze yeah. time. Yeah, I don't mind that. At the I, same I, time. I, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Still, 
give them an announcement like, hey, uh, this is Eddie Guerrero. This is JL. These guys haven't been on TV in a while. It, it feels like forever. Just the way some of those shows dragged last time, our last episode, some of those shows just dragged because there was no cruisers on there. Right. And so Eddie has, I don't think, been seen in like three weeks. So I feel like just a refresher, hey, this is Eddie Guerrero. This is Mr. JL. Uh, give him those proper ring announcements. And, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think, think that's, that would have been beneficial. But. Yeah, I think that's what stuck out to me, too, is just these guys are still new to the company. Maybe the casual fan that's just flipping over, who are these guys? So, yeah, I think that would have did them a little help there. But I do like that there there's action ready to go in the ring, though. I really, really liked that touch to this episode of Nitro. Yeah, it's definitely different for the time. Uh, we learned that Eddie Guerrero is part of the WCW team at Starcade in the Best of Seven World Cup against New Japan Pro Wrestling. Eddie is not going to be a rice cakewalk, says Eric Bischoff. So get in your uh, racial puns here uh, this week on oh, WCW Lord. Nitro. The commentary during this match, as you might suspect, because we have cruiserweights in the ring, is spent putting over something other than the actual match. However, I don't have a problem with it this week because it's not about Hulk Hogan. It's not about the Giant or the Dungeon of Doom. It's actually about WCW versus New Japan, which Eddie Guerrero is technically a part of. Uh, Bischoff even puts over JL and says, maybe JL even deserves to be part of the Best of Seven series. I wouldn't go that far, but it's nice that he's trying to give them a little rub anyway. Some decent moves here by Jerry Lynn with a springboard dropkick. He slips a little bit, but he hits it anyway. Eddie's sitting perched on the top rope. JL hits a springboard dropkick, knocks Eddie to the floor, and then a running, rolling senton off the apron, diving out to Eddie on the floor. Bobby Heenan on commentary thinks JL stands for just lucky. I don't think Mongo <laughs> realizes that they can be there can be babyface versus babyface matches, and I, I believe he's confused, and he assumes that JL is a heel here. Because in the middle of the match, he just randomly starts yelling for Eddie to take the dude's mask off. I want to see what he looks like. Take his mask off. And Bischoff and Heenan basically have to ignore Mongo and steer the commentary in a different direction. Uh, Eddie Guerrero and JL trade some quick pinning combinations at the end of the match. And it's Guerrero with a win and a sunset roll-up in 4 minutes and 28 seconds. It's another one of those cases of uh, they give, they've been given a short amount of time and they do everything they can with the with the time they've been given yeah absolutely it's one of the pitfalls of these uh one hour shows i don't think i I never really paid attention to it but we're so used to now like you know two hour three hour three hours is too long but two hour you know tv show where you have enough time to space things and give people time if they need it and things like that whereas one hour it's just bam 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 you got to get to it so these guys they're getting like a three or four minute match and they know that like, this is my chance to get over and they just go out and falls to the wall. And, uh, it's not like, like you mentioned before, it's not the greatest like story or the greatest wrestling match. It's just right. spot after spot. That's very entertaining. It's so much fun to watch. So I'm all for it. This is a very entertaining and fun match. I liked it. Yeah, I agree. And it's uh, a case of, you can have a face versus face match without having to play too goody goody. And not, not that they were cheating. They just put on a really great wrestling match and that's, you know, it wasn't, completely scientific you were able to do actual moves to one another and I, I that's what i really enjoyed about it it was a good match and the right guy won obviously eddie guerrero's really getting a, a strong push here so far and, and i i didn't really remember i didn't i didn't remember eddie doing a lot of jobs but i didn't remember 
him being prominently featured as he has been. Now, yes, he did miss, as you pointed out, the last couple of weeks of Nitro. He hasn't been on him. But other than that, he's pretty much been on every single week of WCW Monday Nitro other than maybe the debut episode. So they really made a point to keep Eddie on the show, even though they change out Malenko, change out Benoit, change out Sabu, and Sabu's gone now. But they've always made sure to try to fit Eddie on the show. So they have some big plans here for him, it would seem. And he even came down to the final 10 guys in the World War III Battle Royal. The only uh, young guy, the only new guy in the company that really made it that far into the Battle Royal. So very interesting, keeping an eye here on young Eddie Guerrero. It's promo time. Ha! Call the hotline! It's Mean Gene Okerlund with Jimmy Hart and Total Package Lex Luger. Luger says he's the uncrowned WCW champion. He had Savage beat dead to rights. Hulk Hogan screwed Luger, causing a disqualification, allowing Randy Savage to retain. We see a clip of Lex Luger racking Savage at Halloween Havoc. Another clip of Luger with the arm bar on Savage at World War III. Luger says he has Savage's number. And uh, Luger owns Savage, and he's also ready for Ric Flair and even his buddy Sting in the triangle match at Starcade to get that next crack at Macho Man's title. Luger feels he, he can become the next world champion at Starcade. Yeah, decent promo. He's not wrong. He's not lying here. Uh, as far as the way the booking has gone, he's definitely owned Savage lately. So, like I said, he's not lying. So, I mean, it was decent. <laughs> it's 1995, Lex Luger. I mean, yeah, and here's the... Here's the day and night of Luger and Savage in these promos we're going to see here up until Starcade. When Randy Savage cuts his promos, he's pretty much focused on the triangle match. He's focused on all the storylines ongoing that he has with the Giant and, and all that stuff as well. But he always finds a way to slide Tenzan's name into the promo. It may be quick, but at least he mentions him, that he's wrestling him as part of the Best of Seven Series. Lex Luger's part of the Best of Seven Series, and you wouldn't know it, by his promos, because he's only focused on the triangle match, the world title match. I don't remember who he re- wrestles. I think it's Chono. I'm not positive, though. But I know he wrestles someone in the Best of Seven series, and he doesn't even mention it one time. It's um, not shocking, but yeah. it's, Sav- it's sad. Yeah, absolutely. Savage, even, like, he always says Tenzan, Japanese superstar, and his right. way, like, he puts him over. Because, I mean, it makes sense. Like, yeah, these guys have nothing established in the States. So it's up to these guys to get them over. And Macho Man's like Tenzan, Japanese superstar, week after week after week leading into their match. I have no idea who, I mean, I know who Tenzan is, but as a, in 95, I would have no idea who he was. And right. Savage calling him a Japanese superstar makes me already think, okay, this dude is something. I don't know what he is, but he's something. So like, it gets to your mind and it makes you think and it makes you want to see who he is. Is he really right. that good? He's a superstar. And then Luger, you have no idea who you're fighting. So, um, like you said, night and day, just complete opposite of a professional compared to somebody just collecting a check. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's that time again. It's that time, Steve. It's, it's the battle of the amazing theme musics. As Disco Inferno to the ring to take on Wonderful. They call him Mr. Wonderful. I don't know all the words, but it doesn't matter. Because he's so wonderful. And it goes something like that. 
as Paul Orndorff makes his way to the ring with that little ma- uh, miniature mirror that he looks into. And I, I love this. He gets down to ringside and he takes the mirror and he puts it behind him and he checks out his ass in the mirror, Steve. I'd never noticed that before. I pop for that. Uh, Paul Orndorff <laughs> embracing the comedy gimmick here. And I love him for it because <laughs> for his entire career, he had been a badass. And here he understands he's a little up there in age and he's having some some health issues and some injuries and hey man why not have some fun if i'm getting paid and they're gonna let me on tv i'm gonna have some fun with this shit and i just loved it it was great stuff by paul Orndorff here seriously guys go check this out he gets down to ringside and i'd never noticed it before but he takes the mirror puts it behind him he looks down and he's checking his own ass out so way to go mr number wonderful and i'm actually getting into it man. i was really getting into it and it's unfortunate what happens here uh before this episode ends but Disco Inferno jumps Paul Orndorff to get going, but Orndorff comes right back and uh, knocks Disco Inferno silly with what Eric Bischoff calls the left hand that made Paul famous, taking a shot at Vader there. That's what Paul Orndorff beat Vader to the ground on before Vader was fired from the company. And then, you know, there was a period where Paul Orndorff started doing the wind-up elbow drop. And he every time he did it, he, it took him a little long. He wound up just a little longer until it became... A comedy spot to some degree. He wound up longer and longer. This was the best <laughs> of all of them. A collaboration of the wind-up elbow meets uh, disco dancing or something along those lines. As Paul Underb drops a, a wind-up elbow drop for the ages. I have to grab a clip of this and throw this on Twitter because it's phenomenal. Everything, I, I'm so pissed off at what happens later in this show. In a little bit, because everything about this match made me want to see Paul. He's he's my new guilty pleasure here in WCW at this point. Between the begin, between the entrance, the entrance theme, and now <laughs> here he's he's busting out the uh, the dancing elbow drop. Anyways, Orndorff doesn't even use the pile driver here. Takes Disco out with a nasty looking back suplex, dumps Disco oh, on man. his head, and Orndorff gets the win. Two minutes twenty seconds. Fun stuff by Mister Wonderful. Yeah, this is a fun match. He he killed him with that suplex. But I got to ask, man, did you pick up on – I, I got to give kudos to Bobby Heenan here. He hyped the hell out of this music. And he did a great job of trying to put it over. And then he says uh, Heenan made the comment that Gene, Gene Okerlund, is the one singing the high-pitched part and said he did it while sitting on a 40-inch block of ice. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard him saying that. I, did, I didn't understand the joke. You're laughing at it. What does it mean? Uh, I, I'm confused. I, I don't know, dude. Just his delivery and him. Uh, oh, okay. You're just laughing at the del- delivery. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was nonsensical. But I guess I didn't like, laugh because I was too deep in thought, like trying to figure out what the hell he meant, but maybe he didn't even mean anything. It's just Bobby being Bobby. I don't but know. yeah, I do. I did I, I catch the comment. I, I did catch the comment, yes. He just came at it. It just came off, and I, I'm assuming Bobby thought it was the funniest thing he thought of and uh I, I can just imagine what he's thinking but maybe he was sitting on the yeti you know um <laughs> he had to fall out so yeah. maybe gene was sitting on it maybe maybe he hatched out. the yeti the yeti <laughs> oh man i was dying though. I, I don't know what the hell it means but i thought it was hilarious i was dying but yeah this is a fun fun little segment uh, it turns bad here coming up but uh it was fun while it lasted like you said and it's promo time once again with Mean Gene Okerlund. Uncle Elmore sucks! Mean Gene Okerlund with the Horsemen, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Brian Pillman in the aisleway. 
Brian Pillman's full-on crazy at this point, Steve. Pillman says everyone wants to be a horseman. Even Hulk Hogan was wearing black for a few weeks. Hogan wanted to play a bad guy, but the horsemen are bad guys. And then <laughs> just random names Pillman comes up with. The American Males want to be horsemen. Mongo wants to be a horseman. The Dungeon of Doom want to be horsemen. Zodiac? Shark Attack? In the Dungeon of Doom? I don't know about that. It gets to the point where Pillman's borderline incoherent is what I wrote here. He's saying words. I just don't know what the hell they mean. Uh, anyways, he gets to the name Paul Orndorff uh, because Paul had just wrestled. Pillman says Paul Orndorff was once horseman material. Now he's a member of the Psychic Friends Network for four ninety nine a minute. I thought that was a funny line. So Ric Flair takes over on the mic, uh, begins to cut a Ric Flair-esque promo when out comes Paul Orndorff who takes exception to Brian Pillman's comments. Paul has the utmost respect for Flair and Arn, but Pillman is a snot-nosed punk, says Orndorff. Paul could have been a horseman any time he wanted to. Pillman tells him he's nothing but mediocrity. Orndorff says Pillman is there to carry the horseman's bags and play chauffeur, and that sets Pillman off. He slaps Mr. Wonderful. Bad idea. Paul attacks Pillman like a pit bull, drives him down and goes for the throat. That's how you do a face turn, if that's what this was. Paul attacks Pillman, but Flair and Arn right there, they join in, and it's a three-on-one on Mr. Wonderful. And Arn Anderson with a spike pile driver on the concrete. Ric Flair with the assist coming off the miniature ramp there. A spike pile driver on Paul Orndorff right on the concrete as Pillman stands there celebrating like a, a sick motherfucker. This wouldn't be the last time. We see the other horsemen having to come to Pillman's rescue here and then in the upcoming weeks. But Paul Orndorff is down and he is not moving an inch. And the announcers make sure they put that over repeatedly. Mongo and Heenan even talk their familiarity with this type of injury. Mongo on the football field and Heenan with his experience in the wrestling business. They sell it as uh, this is really, really a bad thing as we go into commercial break. And we come back out. Paul is still laying there, uh, still not moving. And Bobby Heenan's over top of him showing remorse as well. Bobby Heenan showing concern. And uh, we see medical staff out there. There's a stretcher. They're trying to get Orndorff loaded onto a stretcher. And uh, it looks like a serious angle as the horsemen have taken out Paul Orndorff just moments after, I, you know, I was sitting there laughing and having a great time and they, and the horsemen take it all away. So makes the horseman heels for me, uh, which is really unfortunate. But the story here is, is that Orndorff actually needs uh, legit neck surgery. So this is the way to write him out of TV. It's uh, unfortunate of uh, the timing of this situation. There's a, a few comments here. Uh, when you talk about Pillman just going in, like he said the American Mel sent Ric Flair 8 by 10s with Mongo, and that Mongo is pretty flexible for a big guy. Right. <laughs> so if he's not full-on crazy yet, this was it. This is one of those things that kind of solidified it. Uh, I thought Mongo did excellent, an excellent job here uh, referencing football. And the injuries that he see, I think you mentioned a player that, that played for the 49ers, I think it was, who broke his neck or injured his neck and never played played again in the NFL. So whenever you can relate like a professional sport like the NFL that is held in high esteem and things like that and compare it to something that's happening here, even though we know it's work, but he is actually legit injured. It, it just adds believability to it. And I thought also Heenan going down and checking on Orndorff was great as well. It, it just made it authentic and real. Like, Paul essentially turned face right there for a moment. Heenan going down to check on him. Like, it doesn't matter at this point. I got to go see what's up with my guy. I know I've worked with him. I've managed him. 
I know him. He's a friend. So it, it just adds some believability to it. But I'll be remiss if I didn't say this kind of – and I understand he had to have neck surgery and he was getting written out. It felt like they were trying to do their own Sean Angle. <laughs> Just a little bit. I wouldn't put it past Bischoff to run something this extreme. Because, I mean, hmm. let's be honest, Paul Orndorff hasn't even really been on TV for a couple weeks. It's been a, about three or four weeks since we've seen him. And then all of a sudden he's on Nitro just to get put out. So it almost feels like their own little Sean Angle to a degree. That's how it came across to me. Yeah, I didn't even – hadn't even never thought of that before. I don't know. Uh, this is – a little different for me, I guess. Uh, the Sean incident was based off of, you know, the whole the Syracuse thing and all that other stuff. And the collapse happened on itself uh, in the middle of the ring, whereas this was, a, you know, a dastardly act that we have seen heels do a number of times in the past and stretcher jobs and things. So I didn't really put that together. I mean, it's always a possibility that that's what uh, caused them to come up with something like this, to do something a little more edgy on WCW because we weren't seeing things this nasty up until this point so other than hogan you know hitting people chairs and things but uh yeah it's yeah, interesting yeah. it's an interesting way to look at things i don't know that i look at it that way but i could see where you definitely uh made the connection there absolutely and on this week's episode of wcw saturday night it's sting taking on craig pitbull Pittman, tv champion johnny b bad against brian pillman bunkhouse buck against alex wright Plus, Eddie Guerrero in action. Sounds like a little fun episode of Saturday Night this week. And it's back to the ring. No, it's not. It's it's actually a pretty good show. I, I wouldn't mind checking that episode out. Uh, but it's back to the ring here on Nitro with Lex Luger, accompanied by Jimmy Hart, to take on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And if I, I'm telling you, dude, when, when I saw this match, I was groaning. I was like, let this be one of these two-minute matches. As Luger makes his way down to ringside, we see Paul Orndorff being taken out on a stretcher. Eventually during the match, they cut away and show order of being taken out, actually put into the ambulance. I wrote my, my note for this match is this was ass. That's how I described this match. Jimmy Hart on the apron. None of this made any, even the finish made no sense for absolutely no reason whatsoever. As Lex Luger seemed like he was in control. Jimmy Hart gets onto the apron with the two by four to distract Jim Duggan. uh, Who's just making his comeback begins taping his fist up. So you know what was coming. But Jimmy Hart on the apron with the 2x4, distracting the referee, distracting Jim Duggan. It looks like Lex comes up from behind and clocks Duggan in the back of the head with the steel-plated forearm. But Mongo claims Jim's head bounced off the 2x4 that Jimmy was holding. I don't know what the hell happened here. I just know Hacksaw went down and torture rack. Lex Luger gets the win in, thank God, 2 minutes and 30 seconds. And I don't know if you caught this, but the minute Luger got Duggan up into the rack, the crowd went ape shit. Like, I don't know if they were applauding that this match was over, or they just hate Jim Duggan this much. I know Lex Luger isn't this fucking over, but I just, I, I know I was popping that this shit was over. I don't know, man. This, how does this, all of this talent, how does this make Nitro? Yeah, I don't know. I, I put who, I don't know whose idea it was to put these two in together, but man, what shit. I did hear the pop. I will say, man, Luger is Charlotte. So they they probably remember the glory days of Lex Luger when he was halfway decent and uh, entertaining. So he, he's probably a more of, even though he's been in the WWF so, for a few years, he's probably more of a... Uh, a uh, Pocket boy. What's the, like like a home hometown player yes. type guy. He, he's the hometown guy. And he's somebody that they like. Whereas Hope Duggan... 
is an outsider from the WWF, so they right. obviously don't like him. So, uh, but yeah, I heard the pop. It was pretty loud. Yeah, I could, I could see it that way. I could see it. Steve, you're very astute this week. And the things you're picking up on. Yeah, uh, yeah, I could see Luger's the Crockett boy and Jim Duggan's the uh, New York guy. So, boo. I get it. And we see that again here in the main event as well. Promo time, though, with Gene Okerlund. Call the hotline. Kids, get your parents' permission, but not really. Because Mean Gene makes a percentage of every single call. And the dirty tricks will continue with the hotline going into 1996. But for right now, it's promo time. Mean Gene enters, interviews the world heavyweight champion, Macho Man Randy Savage. Savage will be at Starcade wrestling Tenzan. There's that name. Macho Man makes sure to get over the World Cup match as well as the world title match. Now, he could wrestle any of three men. It could be Luger. could be Flair. It could be Sting. That would be an interesting match. Uh, so Savage talks all about that. Plus, next week, the Macho Man has the Giant in a title match on Nitro. And what a great way to let the arm heal. Hey, Mach, we know you've got that arm injury, so let's throw you in a match with the Giant on TV and then two matches at the pay-per-view against a Japanese-style worker in Tenzan and then against, you know, one of our top athletes as well. So what a, what a way to protect your world champion here. But Randy Savage, a fighting champion, no doubt. Yeah, it was a decent little promo by the Macho Man. Nothing fancy. Yeah, not, not a lot there. It's, it's just run-of-the-mill stuff. Again, he does a great job of getting everything over that he needs to get over, and only the way Macho Man can. So, solid work. Main event time, it's Hulk Hogan teaming with Sting to take on two members of the Horsemen, Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. Arn and Sting start off good back-and-forth stuff, but a tag to Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, and Hogan gets booed loudly. Flair tags in, the Hulkster tags in. And the moment Hulk gets the tag, the crowd erupts in boos. It was tremendous. And Flair gets cheered as he tags in. So Hogan no-sells Flair right away because he's Hulk Hogan. Beats Flair up, tosses him around the ring. Flair goes to the eyes and the crowd pops on an eye poke to the Hulkster. I thought that was fun. Sting tags back in. We get some Sting and Flair stuff. Typical Sting and Flair stuff. We see it almost every week, it feels like. Nothing wrong with it. It's just... Can we get a week off? Finally, Flair takes over with an inverted atomic drop and the heels work over Sting's leg. Ric Flair with the figure four, but Sting finally makes the tag to Hogan, but the referee, Randy Anderson, misses it. And this is where I noted, sometimes Mongo is too smart for his own good. This is the third time now since Nitro started where Mongo's basically basically exploited the the storylines in professional wrestling. And so here we go again. He says, how does that tag not count, the tag that Sting made to Hogan, because the referee didn't see it? But Mongo points out that the referee missed several Flair and Anderson tags, and he allowed all of those. Come on, Mongo, you can't give away the, <laughs> the, the secrets of the business here now. You're pointing out the obvious things that nobody's ever allowed to call into question out loud. But it's okay, because Sting hulks up on his own. He presses Flair off the top rope, but Flair tags in Arn Anderson. Sting! Drives Arn face first into the mat and hot tag to Hulk Hogan with no noise. The crowd doesn't even make a noise for the hot tag to the Hulkster. And Arn Anderson right away with the spine buster on Hulk Hogan and doesn't even bother to cover. And Hulk Hogan pops right up. He hulks up and boots everyone. Boots Ric Flair, boots Arn Anderson, leg drop to double A. 
gets the win in 13 minutes and 24 seconds. The only thing good about the finish was the fact that while Hogan was making the cover on Arn Anderson, out of nowhere, Sting runs across the ring and just lays a Stinger splash into Ric Flair. It looked kind of cool, but yeah, Hogan has to make sure he's the one that saves the day, gets the leg drop on Arn Anderson, and the baby faces win in about 13 and a half minutes there. So Hulk books himself the winner again, and this is really getting nauseating every week for uh, as unover as he is already with the crowd. Booking himself down everyone's throats is just making people revolt even more, it feels like to me, because he's not just getting wins. He's the one clearing the ring. He's making saves for people that he's not even in storylines he's not even involved in. It's just too much for me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, He's doing it to himself, but it it just makes you wonder. He's like, he probably doesn't give a shit. He obviously doesn't give a shit. So he's going to do what he does. Uh, I put down here like the hot tag was ice cold. Uh, Sting kind of just fell into Hogan, and the crowd did nothing. I think Bischoff tries to explain it away that the crowds are going crazy and all that. Well, no, dude, we got ears we can hear. <laughs> they were sitting on their hands, but yeah, this is a solid little match. I thought the, I thought obviously with Sting in there doing getting all the heat, it, it was fun. Uh, Arn and Flair are pros, pros. You can't go wrong with them. And yeah, I thought the the finish was cool with. Sting as well, knowing that Stinger splash in the corner, uh, kind of taken away from Hogan getting the win a little bit, just because I was focused on that. I didn't even care that Hogan was pinning somebody. I don't even know <laughs> who he pinned. He pinned Arn. Yeah. Um, so, like, I was looking at Sting there because it looked cool, like you said. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm kind. I'm over seeing these guys in the main event all the time. I think, I think I mentioned this before, and I know I got it from Meltzer, but the big concern with Nitro or starting Nitro was Hogan was kind of already over, over done before a live Monday show every week. How are they going to protect him and keeping the mystique and oh Hogan's here this week and how they're going to keep that, keep the ratings up and things like that. Is he going to be there every week? Is he going to, is he going to miss some weeks? Things like that. And I, the, the biggest question that Meltzer had was are they, how they're going to protect him to where he doesn't get stale. Uh, obviously what they're doing is not working. It, it's time for him to figure something out. Um, either leave for a little bit, come back, or just stop booking yourself in every single thing that is going on yeah, at the my, top I of think, the food chain. Yeah. I, I think my biggest problem here is he's not at Starcade. He has nothing to do with the Star- Starcade pay-per-view. And I'm not saying take him completely off TV, but he doesn't need to prominently feature himself in everybody else's angle and his own angles and storylines here on Nitro every week when we're building to a bunch of matches that have nothing to do with them at the pay-per-view. And again, if he wants to be on TV, that's fine, but he doesn't have to be on TV every week. He doesn't have to be in every single segment that involves main event talent besides himself. And that's, you know, that's the issue there is uh, the match. The match ends with Hogan getting the pin, but Brian Pillman is quickly in to jump sting. Lex Luger rushes out to make the save to make the save for his friend sting. But when the horsemen attack Hogan, Luger isn't so helpful. He allows the horseman to beat down on Hulk Hogan, but it's Stinger who saves Hogan instead while Lex Luger leaves the ring. And Macho Man comes in to confront Sting. I'm not sure why. And out of nowhere, Sting just jacks Savage, but immediately seems to regret it. And it wasn't one of those accidental punches where you turn around and nail somebody before you realize who you're nailing. He looked right at Savage for about five seconds and then just punched him in the face. And Hogan looks confused between the two trying to separate them as a Hogan sucks chant breaks out. I don't know if you heard that, but I was, it was awesome. 
this is Charlotte. You know they don't like Hogan. So it, it was pretty obvious all night that they was tired of Hogan, and I know a lot of people were. It, it was a cool after fact. Uh, again, it continued that storyline between Sting and Luger and things like that. Is this the one where Luger got Hogan in the rack on the outside? No. No? No, no, that doesn't happen here. Uh-uh. No, this was... Uh, put it down my nose. No, Lex comes in. Uh, he saves. He saves Sting, and then... The horsemen move over from Sting to Hogan and continue to beat on him. And Sting goes over to save Hogan. And Lex just walks away. So Lex leaves the entire situation because Savage is on his way out. So that's that's gotcha. what happens right. this week. Just All to right. be yeah, clear. Yeah, I put down my nose for some reason. I, uh, I know that comes up. We have to talk about that. But, uh, yeah, I, all in all, it was a decent match. It was a fun little aftermath, and again, it's, it continues that storyline that I really enjoy. I, like you said, they don't—I don't think they know where they're going with it. They're just doing little things week after week. I don't think they know what the finish is or where they want to go with it at all. But I'm enjoying it because it's these four guys that, or these three guys that are supposed to be buddy buddy, and they have no idea if they can trust each other or what the hell's going on. That's always intriguing to me. So, uh, especially when it's subtle little things that you're just not sure which way it's going to lean. Like, you don't know, like with him popping Savage like that, this makes you think maybe he is going to join with Luger. And then the next week something else happens and it looks like he's going to stay with Sting and, or Savage and Hogan. So uh, again, they did a pretty solid job with this, even though they probably had no clue where they were going with it. Right. Absolutely. And we come back and it's another promo and we're running over on time once again. And we need that time to have another one of these nonsensical promos. Mean Gene Okerlund in the ring with the Macho Man, Hulk Hogan, and Sting. And the entire promo is screwed up. Nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. Sting says that he hit Hogan last week, and then Hogan hit him. Uh, make up your mind, Sting, in the, in the same promo. Mean Gene claims that Savage hit Sting just a few minutes ago. Mean Gene's probably already been hitting the booze is what I think got hit. And so I don't know what's going on here. Nobody knows what the hell's happening. At the end of the day, the Macho Man just wants to cool down, take a chill pill. I think he forgives Sting, who explains that he nailed Savage because it was the heat of the moment. Savage had his arms in the air, which he did, and Sting just tried to defend himself. That's why he nailed Savage is what he said. And so we go into the finish of the promo. I can't believe we have a finish of the promo. But basically the storyline Hogan says is Sting saved him, brother. And so Sting's okay in Hogan's book. And that'll close up this episode of Nitro. And we learned that next week, like I, I think I already mentioned, the Macho Man will be defending the title against the Giant. That's a pretty big, that's a giant match for Monday Nitro. Another free giveaway that I would have saved for a pay-per-view. Yeah, I think Mongo makes that comment again. I think Savage says he kind of sees the writing on the wall with Sting. Like he's afraid to lose Sting. He even mentions it. Uh, they said they have all the, he has all the respect in the world for somebody like Sting and him and Hogan don't want him to get away from them and, and wants him to stay on their side. So Savage is even picking up on the fact that maybe Sting is going to join up with his buddy Luger. You can't really, there's really nothing you can do for friendship. You know, it, Luger has that ace in the hole type deal where he could possibly get to Sting, whereas Savage and Hogan is trying to get where Luger's at. So again, nice little subtle things that they do to enhance this story a little bit. Yeah, I I think this is too kiddy for me. Some of the storyline, though, these guys hitting each other and what were you coming from, man? Every single week. I mean, give yeah. me a better reason. I, it feels like junior high or middle school, as uh, they call it now. It was junior high back in my day, 
But that's just what this feels like here. Like, oh, I'm your friend today, but maybe not next week. And he said, she said, and it's a little too childish for me. I like that they're trying to come up with something. I just wish there was a little more action involved instead of just, you know, what's, what's really transpiring here. These closing segments every week that really get you nowhere. It's basically a couple of guys bitching and then everybody hugging. So it is what it is. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Segment of the night, Steve. Be- I, was, I was just going to say, if it just stay between like Sting and Luger and let them figure it out instead of, you know, pulling in Savage and Hogan, it would have been a lot better off. But, yeah, I, I hear you there. My favorite segment of the night was the main event. Eddie and JL was good, but it was pretty slow. Uh, not slow. It was just too short. Uh, I, I enjoyed the main event. You know, the match was fun. Uh, the finish was was the finish and then the story afterwards was good. So I, I went with the last segment there. The main event. Yeah. Yeah. Segment of the night. It's hard for me to say, I think, you know, I want to lump all the Paul Orndorff stuff into one segment. I don't know if I can do that. Or if that's cheating, the, the angle with Orndorff was huge. It's the biggest thing we've seen and most realistic thing we've seen in WCW TV. It's certainly beats sumo trucks on the, on the roof of a arena anyway. So, and yet he's breaking out of ice blocks. So I, I feel like I like, I loved Paul Orndorff. That was my segment of the night was just Paul Orndorff, the entrance, the, the energetic character in the ring, and then coming out and turning, well, maybe not turning babyface, but being Paul Orndorff is the best way to describe it. And then the, the storyline done to him. The s- sad part is, is they built it up for Orndorff to come back and get revenge. And that really never happens because the injury is a little worse than they, they feared. And so that, that kind of sucks knowing that going forward as he does try to come back, I think at some point, but it doesn't work out. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm going to go with just Paul Orndorff is, is the answer for me. I didn't really care for the main event. These Hogan matches just bore me is the reason uh, name value wise. And there was nothing wrong with staying in there. He did a great job with the guys, but just seeing the same shit over and over with those guys. And I agree with you. Eddie and JL was very good, but they just weren't given enough time to do what they do best. So I'm going to go Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff is my segment of the night. I'm cheating. And if you have a problem with that, you talk to Paul Orndorff about it. (laughs) And we will continue on to the USA Network. It's WWF Monday Night Raw, December 11th. Taped back on November 20th, Richmond Coliseum in Virginia. It's the final hour of the taping, so I tried to pay close attention to the fans here. They weren't too bad. It's also the go-home show to the In Your House pay-per-view for December 1995, featuring Bret Hart defending the title against the Bulldog. We kick the show off. Owen Hart down to ringside. He's got a whole crew with him. It's Jim Cornette, Mr. Fuji, and Yokozuna. Owen needed all that to get in there against the 18-year-old Jeff Hardy. As the match gets going, we see a uh, cut to Diana Smith in the crowd, the wife of the British Bulldog, the sister of Owen and Brett. Diesel is also shown backstage watching on the monitor. A lot of monitor watching by the click lately between Razor and Diesel. Uh, the, the laziness begins, I suppose. Kevin Nash figured it out all the way back here in 1995. Well, yeah. It's hard not to. Fun stuff in the match. Obviously, you got Jeff Hardy out there. He's 18 years old, so what are you going to get? It's Lee Scott version 2 is basically what you get. Jeff Hardy takes a backflip off an Owen Hart clothesline. Owen nails a nice-looking missile dropkick. Sharpshooter? No. Owen teases the sharpshooter, but he doesn't need it here against Jeff Hardy. He goes into a jackknife pin. Jackknife. He's facing Diesel in your house. Get it, Steve? A jackknife pin gets the win. Two minutes, 34 seconds. 
Yeah, it's crazy to think how far back the Hardys go. I mean, this is 95, and he's in a match with Owen Hart. I get it. He's an enhancement talent, but it's just crazy to think about how many people now have actually had matches with Owen. But anyway, yeah, a solid match. Jeff Hardy looked great. Like you said, Lee Scott 2.0. He's flying around. He's going to sell like a million bucks, and he's going to make you look good. And that's what you want as an enhancement guy. And the jackknife pin was pretty clever. That's Owen being Owen. Yeah, a fun little match to open it up. Post-match sees Owen Hart. He wants Yoko Zuner to bonsai drop the poor youngster Jeff Hardy, and he does so. And with that, Owen Hart locks Jeff Hardy in the sharpshooter. As Diesel has seen enough from backstage, Diesel comes running out. He chases Owen off as Owen releases the sharpshooter and runs off. Diesel winds up nailing Yokozuna with a big boot to send Yokozuna to the floor. And I wrote here, if all Yokozuna had to do was do bonsai drops and take those cool-looking bumps through the ropes to the floor, he'd be awesome, Steve. Unfortunately, he has to wrestle as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's about all he can do at this point. Um, It's unfortunate because... He was a hell of a talent in 93 when he first came in, and uh, man, it sucks he let himself go. We continue on with the action, and it is action, as Aja Kong takes on Chaparita Asari. Asari, early on with a double springboard backflip mule kick, twice from corner to corner. She's such a a tremendous, a really small girl, but what a tremendous talent was Asari here. Uh, She tries for a body block, but actually bounces off the chest of Aja Kong. Vince did it last time. Now it's Lawler's turn here this week on commentary. As he joins in as well, mocking Aja Kong, he said that Aja sat on the couch with a recently departed rapper, Fat Boy, and they were eating potatoes, not potato chips. They were eating full potatoes, Steve. And uh, we learned that Vince McMahon will be chatting on AOL tonight. There's actually a Vince McMahon AOL transcript out there somewhere. I don't know if it was this interview or if it was the last interview uh, that he did, he did a couple of them, but they're pr- it's pretty comical as Vince is not taking it seriously, and he's being, well, basically the Vince that we would know later on, just really silly stuff. But anyways, back to this match. I don't want to take away from this match. Aja Kong mauls poor Asari with a package pile driver, dear God, and pulls her up from the three count. And she does this repeatedly, the uh, pulling her up from nasty-looking uh, moves and then getting a two-count, pulling her hair up by her hair. Does the rude hip swivel, Aja Kong. Looked a little odd there. I'm going to have to admit that. Aja psychs herself up by headbutting herself into the top turnbuckle but misses a middle rope splash. Asari goes straight up top but misses the sky twister press as well. And Aja Kong with the spinning back fist actually legitimately, and you can tell, Breaks the nose of Asari here, and holy shit, did she hit her to get the win in four minutes and three oh. seconds. Yeah, man, holy shit. Like, uh, clearly color. They they did the replay, then they came back and showed her face, and blood's just kind of trickling out of her nose. It looks bad. You couldn't really see the connection because Asari's hair was, like, covering her face when she got hit. But, man, when they came back from that replay... I, I didn't. I was kind of looking, and I missed it. And they made a comment. I think he's actually commenting on what the hell was happening instead of making fun of somebody. But they made like, oh, you can tell this one was uh, that was brutal or something like that. They made a comment to make you want to look at it. And by the time I looked at it, I missed it, so I had to rewind it and I saw it. And I was like, oh my god, yeah, she nailed her flush. But yeah, this was a this was a very entertaining match. Aja Khan looked great again. Uh, I really feel bad 
for the ladies. They didn't get the just do from commentary. Uh, they were jokes. And the, the sad part is, like, I know it sucks that they're gone. I felt like they got over and they did their part and they did what they were supposed to do. But if they were here for months on end and all you got was this this garbage commentary that they received during these matches, nobody would ever take them serious. I don't care how good their match is. If, the, if Vince and Jerry Lawler down there aren't going to take them serious, then why should I? Like It, it would kind of just feel like a throwaway. I mean, and you're just like, you're, you're, you're hurting yourself just because, you know, like if you're not giving it at the time of day, then you're missing out on some great action. But, I mean, it's really hard to concentrate on what's going on when these two idiots are on the commentary just making joke after joke on them. Yeah, no, the most unfortunate part about this, as hard as they've been working and what Asari just went through, these ladies are gone. Uh, this is all for naught. Yeah. At some point between the beginning of this taping and the week of this airing, Vince McMahon had made the call to basically cancel out the women's division, cost-cutting measures supposedly. Uh, Meltzer, in, in fact, just this week on Twitter, Meltzer went against that, even though that was the story back then that he told and was told. He's claiming that Vince could have easily, based on what the women were getting paid, he could have easily cut two undercard guys to save the same amount of money. It was just more uh, booking philosophy at the time. They didn't want women on the show anymore at this point. They weren't getting over or whatever. Not, I beg to differ. I think they were more over here in the last month than they have been the entire time Alundra Blaze has been with the company. But Vince apparently didn't think so, and I guess some point in this week here where this show aired, they had alerted the All Japan women that they would not be coming back. Uh, they canceled Aja Kong's match with Alundra Blaze, which you had mentioned before was scheduled for the Royal Rumble for the women's title. So they on December 13th, it was Alundra Blaze's contract expired, and they basically alerted her at that point that they were not going to renew it. And so... Obviously, we'll see what happens here in a little bit, and I have more to say about that when we get there. So this is the last we'll see of the ladies here in the WWF for quite a while, and certainly the last we'll see of ladies who can actually work in the WWF for really quite a while. So uh, it was a hell of a match to go out on. It's just unfortunate that you finally found something like this and you throw it away. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really unfortunate. Uh, that's the best word for it. They deserve better because they, they busted their ass for the three weeks they were on here. Um, just awesome matches. I, I enjoyed the hell out of them. And I'm not a huge fan of women's wrestling in general. So, they, they like I said, they entertained the heck out of me. Todd Pettengill with a sit-down interview with Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels wants to thank the fans. He says he hasn't had any dizziness or blackouts lately. Todd Pettengill asks, when is Shawn coming back? Shawn says he would return today. But the doctors and the higher-ups in the WWF don't agree. Todd Pettengill questions the uh, the elephant in the room. Possible retirement. What if Sean can't come back? And it's at this point in the interview that Sean gets serious, almost angry. Very much what I would imagine a real Sean Michaels would look like at this point in the interview. And Sean says, is that what this whole thing's about? He looks at Todd Pettengill and he said, it's not about your concern for me. It's about getting my reaction. To that question on camera. Todd doesn't even respond to deny to deny this unless he was doing it off camera. They they don't show Todd as Sean's cutting this promo. Sean's very upset. He thinks this entire thing he was he's been uh, ambushed to get his response to get his reaction on camera 
uh, about possible retirement here. And this is Sean's livelihood, he says. He's not going to dignify this question with an answer. I thought this was a pretty well done piece. It was different, you know, uh, along with the collapse. The collapse, the whole, this whole thing, we're, we're in new, we're in uncharted territory here. And I think so far they're doing a pretty good job with it. Yeah, uh, I I liked it. It feels like, though, like, I don't know. It almost feels like he's going to be heelish. Like you said, I think that you you gave the the impression of this is probably what Sean was like in real life at this point in his life. And I can see that. It did did feel authentic and real. Uh, It's like everybody's using him. And this is just another one of those things where he's being used just to get a reaction. Like, nobody really cares about me. It's just they just want a reaction. They know I'm a hothead, that sort of stuff. That, that kind of how it feels. And it almost feels like he's going to be like a heelish type person if this was an angle. Like this is, So when he comes back, this is what he's going to be. And it doesn't really turn out that way. So it, it's interesting for sure, and it's definitely different. But yeah, I enjoyed the segment. Show continues on with Ahmed Johnson in the ring taking on Rick Stockhauser. During the match, we get an insert promo from Dean Douglas. We learn that Dean Douglas... We'll take on Ahmed Johnson at the In Your House pay-per-view. Back to the match. Ahmed Johnson is aggressive, but dangerous as hell. Nearly kills Rick on a spine buster, and so he has to do it a second time. Poor poor Rick Stockhauser. And that's another thing. That's another funny comment that uh, I read in one of the observers around this time. Somebody had said something along the lines of Ahmed being dangerous, and Meltzer said, it's actually not the tiger driver that's dangerous. It's these spine busters that he's doing that lead up to the, to, to the tiger driver that are dangerous. And that they are. He damn near kills Stockhauser on the first one, uh, does a better looking one on the second time around. And it is the tiger driver that gets the win here in a minute and eight seconds. And it's finally named the Pearl River Plunge. Ahmed Johnson picks up the win in just over a minute. And he'll take on Dean Douglas at in your house, or at least that's what we're told at this point. And it's on to promo time. Jerry Lawler interviews Ahmed Johnson, Steve. And Dean Douglas says he's done his homework on Ahmed. And he also says that Ahmed's toughest four years of his life were the third grade. I thought that was, uh, you know, one of Jerry Lawler's old school comedy bits there. But Lawler basically taking jabs at Ahmed Johnson. It almost felt like Lawler was being set up for some type of match with Ahmed in the near future. Yeah, that's how it came across. I think he did this two straight weeks where he was speaking on behalf of Dean right. Douglas instead of Dean Douglas coming out talking. What Lawler's saying is what Lawler would say. Right. Definitely not Dean Douglas's gimmick to be making yeah. these jokes and doing stupid stuff. So, yeah. so I'm with you. Yeah, it feels like uh, definitely feels like they're trying to lead towards a match between Lawler and uh, Ahmed at some point. Yeah, and Lawler gets involved again with Ahmed at the pay-per-view, which we're going to get to here in a little bit. So it just seemed like they kept building up to something, and I don't really remember there ever being a payoff. And my question here is, where is Dean Douglas? And that's Ahmed's question as well. He wants to know where Dean Douglas is if Dean Douglas is saying all these things. Ahmed ain't a man of words. No shit. I can't understand half the things he says. But he is a man of action. And he will do his speaking in the ring at In Your House. So Ahmed Johnson, quick squash, quick promo, not quick enough. But Ahmed Johnson still looking impressive as ever as far as uh, the way he looks in the ring. And he... It may be dangerous, man, but it's believable. Yeah, it's definitely dangerous. He damn near killed Stockhauser, like you said. And I agree, it's that scissors kick and that spine buster where these 
I don't know if they're just giving him the right jobbers or what the case is, but his spot, his scissor kick and that spine buster is brutal. He has the, the tiger driver down pretty solid. It's just everything else that's the problem. So, and I don't know if he ever really corrects it because by the time, I mean, he gets pretty heavy there towards the end here and he doesn't do any of that shit. He just, you know, spine buster pro river plunge and has his ass hanging out half the time. So, uh, <laughs> He came in with the with the bang and leaves with the you know a, a whimper and um, it's really unfortunate the injuries piled up for him and we'll talk about that more down the road when we get to him but yeah so far he's damn near he's definitely impressive and believable for sure one hundred percent and it's time for well handsome Doc Hendricks he's rocking a Shawn Michaels denim jacket sixty dollars I'll pass <laughs> only available in the continental United States they say. So they don't even ship outside of the continental United States. What is going on in the World Wrestling Federation here in 1995? Dear God. Uh, we do get a cool Christmas Probably commercial exclusive. here. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. you think the <laughs> shipping, I can't even imagine <laughs> what was going on here. Oh, their, their shipping facility here in 95. They were cu- cutting costs. I remember Bruce Pritchard saying this is around the time that they came in and moved the water tanks out of Titan Tower. And you can't. I can't imagine that cost. A whole lot, but if you're cutting costs to the point where you're removing water jugs from your building, then I, I suppose, you know, let's oh, just, shit. yeah, let's just, uh, a lunger blaze has to go and the water tanks, so we'll keep everyone else. <laughs> I never, as a fan, I never realized, I, I, I kind of pick up like it was a down period. Right. Um, but I never realized they were on the verge of, of losing that much money as a, as a kid. Like I, I just, you know, it's one of those things you just assume they're always going to be around. Right. Um, I felt the same way about WCW until so I, you know, towards the end there, I definitely was reading up and knowing what was going on, but yeah, I never would have guessed like water tanks. Really? That's probably like 30 bucks a week or some shit. You're cutting that cost. I mean, it's just a little bit of everything, man. They do have a cool Christmas commercial here. I haven't seen this in so long. I actually forgot about it until they show it here. Uh, there's a criminal lineup going on. There's a little boy getting ready to finger whoever the culprit is. It's a criminal lineup of men dressed as Santa Claus. We have it's Ahmed Claus, Yoko Claus, Hakushi Claus, Razor Claus, and Harvey Claus. And little Billy points to the man in the middle. It's Harvey Whippleman. And Harvey Whippleman's the one that told the boy that cigarettes are good for you and all wrestlers are wimps. And there's no such thing as Santa Claus? Terrible, Harvey. And a beatdown ensues. I thought this was odd because there's all these baby faces in the lineup with Harvey. And then Yoko Zuna, who's a full-blown heel still here at this point. But Yoko even joins in on the beatdown, beating Harvey down with the uh, with the Santa sacks. So beatdown on Harvey Wilkman. Fun little thing. And, yeah, just weird seeing Yoko in a baby face spot here. You have to kind of break kayfabe and, and to buy into that. But... Just a, a fun little commercial from the w, holiday commercial from the WWF. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I think that's the same kid that yells Brett in Brett's video, ain't it? I have no pretty idea. Sure it's the same guy. No idea. I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. Guy? <laughs> he's a kid. Well, it's a guy now. Uh, yeah, the same kid. I said the same kid. Well, wait till you hear this episode. Anyways, <laughs> we learned that the Raw Bowl is in two weeks. What is the Raw Bowl? I guess we never really find out until it actually airs because they don't really go into it, but it's a cool little segment. It's Freddie Blassie in a classroom trying to teach or coach 
a bunch of random wrestlers as they're getting ready for this Raw Bowl. Most of them don't even actually participate in the match, but they're in this vignette anyway. So it was cool to see Freddie Blassie get a little play here, and I was very pumped way back when to learn what exactly was the Raw Bowl. Same here. Promo time with Vince McMahon in the ring. He's talking to Ted DiBiase, the one, two, three kid, Psycho Sid. And right away, DiBiase wants to make it clear where there's Sid, there's the kid. And where there's the kid, there's Sid. And after In Your House, when Sid and Kid take on Razor Ramon and Marty Jannetty, it's DiBiase's team that will be the best team in the WWF and they will be the next tag team champions. The one, two, three kid says Razor has twisted his mind. These last couple of years made the kid a puppet, but he's a puppet no more. The kid even puts over Marty Jannetty, referring to him as a top talent, a former Intercontinental Champion and a former Tag Team Champion, even though the kid carried them as a tag team for that whole week, Steve. <laughs> Sid, sells, up, Sid says he feels sorry for Marty, calls Marty a victim of circumstance. Marty's simply on the wrong team, has the wrong partner. However, Sid is not sorry for Razor Ramon. Sid, Sid will enjoy beating down the bad guy. Sid and the kid are now family. Sid says he won't enjoy having to destroy the team of Razor and Marty, but he's just kidding. Vince's facials were awesome as Sid sitting there playing up that psycho crazy thing where, I'm not going to enjoy this. I'm not going Yes, I am! <laughs> and Sid's fa or Vince's facials during all these looks disgusted. I think even Lawler in commentary is like, look at Vince, look at Vince! It's, it's good stuff <laughs> all around. Sid doing the Sid and Vince doing Vince. Yeah, I thought it was pretty fun. It was kind of flat and weak at the beginning yeah. uh, with the, the kid and Ted talking, but once Sid took over, uh, I thought he did an excellent job of getting it over and like you said Vince's facials were top-notch he was not happy and you know there's no better person to sell your product than the person whose product it is so he's definitely getting it over good job uh it was, it, was, it was fun next week we learn Yokozuna will challenge Razor Ramon for the intercontinental title huge match that we had never seen before I remember all the way back then because we hadn't gotten matches like this on even on Raw back then too often and now with Nitro here, we're getting matches like this, these dream matches, so to speak, matches we'd never seen before on TV. And it was pretty a pretty cool deal to think of Yokozuna taking on Razor Ramon. It's just a match that hadn't happened before. I, I, re I can really go back 25 years and remember looking forward to just seeing these guys in the ring together. Yeah, on paper, it's definitely an intriguing match and fun match. But we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Yoko getting something good out of him. Uh, that's a little tough. I'll tell you a match that is not intriguing on paper. It's not intriguing in the ring either. It's WWF champion Bret Hart taking on Bob Backlund. And for some reason, this has become a non-title match. I know they announced that last week, but I still don't understand the point of having this match non-title. Uh, why is this happening? Why did Bob all of a sudden attack the hitman again a few weeks ago? I don't understand the point of any of this. And so Backlund has randomly been on another rampage with Bret Hart and the Chicken Wing, a sound guy, even Jim Ross. Jerry Lawler interviews Diana Smith in the crowd during this match, and she says she'll go ha home happy at In Your House if Davy Boy beats Bret. So she's certainly now on the side of her husband, the heel British Bulldog. Uh, Lawler asks her a couple more questions, too. He wants to know how she feels about Davy's heel turn, uh, how she feels about Davy being managed by Jim Cornette. Diana says she supports Davy's heel turn because... 
Nobody was listening to him before. She likes this new attitude, Davy Boy Smith. Uh, she also gives credit to Jim Cornette, says he's the only person to get Davy a world title shot. So Diana completely supporting Davy Boy, basically a heel herself uh, here in the, during this promo. And back in the ring, it's a whole lot of nothing, so I'm glad they did that promo during the match. Four minutes of a waist lock by Bret Hart before Bob finally takes a bump to the outside and stalls, uh, taking Freebird classes now. Finally, back inside, Bob Backlund tries the chicken wing, but Brett gets into the ropes to break. Backlund works over Brett's arm. We go to commercial. We come back. It's literally the five moves of doom by Bret Hart. Brett goes for the sharpshooter, but Davy Boy Smith in the ring to distract. And from behind comes Bob Backlund. Crossface chicken wing by Bob, but Backlund's disqualified because Davy Boy's in the ring. And Bret Hart gets the win in an unnecessary 13 minute match. Yeah, uh, this match sucked. I feel like this whole show was kind of flat. Absolutely. But um, the main event was <laughs> nothing to write home about. There's a couple things. I know Vince dubbed by Bob Backlund the Lunatic Friends, which was kind of funny. And I also forgot how much I hate the commentary from Raw back in the day. It seemed like all they talked about a lot was pop culture and things that are going on in the world instead of focusing on what's going on in the ring. Right, that was and, Vince's uh, way of trying to, when they would – bump in with up-to-date commentary or live commentary spots throughout portions of these taped episodes to make it feel fresh and live, even though it wasn't. So he wanted to talk about the current events, which is hilarious considering Vince has no idea what's going on with anything in the world nowadays. Yeah. And uh, again, they just ignore the wrestling. And that that to me takes away from it. Uh, Maybe it's because I'm trained for somebody like Jim Ross to, you know, build the match and be a, a major part of the story that's going on. Um, this is completely the opposite of that. It, what stinks is that is though, I know some, a lot of the things they talk about, but some of them I just have no clue what they're even referencing or what they're talking about. Right. And so it, it just takes away from it. So unless you lived in that era and you was watching the news or knew what was going on, they're just talking about random shit. You have no idea what it is. And um, I think they're talking about Princess Diana and all sorts of stuff going on here. But, uh, yeah, the match was very boring. I'm, I'm with you, man. This is kind of like, why are we going back here? Like, there's nobody left for Brett to fight. So they just went back to the, the old you know, the old guard here with Bob Backlund. And Bob Backlund in 95 is not putting on a decent match. Uh, Brett, I'm pretty sure, is tired of wrestling Bob Backlund. So he was just going out here and doing a shit show. It, it wasn't very good. And I felt bad. This was the very last match of this TV taping, I bet you they were snoozing because this was boring. Yeah, I, I didn't even think to look at the crowd to see if they were even really still in their seats. Uh, after the match, Bob Backlund reapplies the chicken wing, and Davey Boy can, uh, commits uh, to stomping on Bret Hart as he softens him up and the end of the go-home show to the in-air house pay-per-view. So Davey Boy trying to soften Bret up just a little bit before their world title match this coming Sunday night at in-air house. Segment of the night, Steve, was it Harvey Claus? Owen versus a young Jeff Hardy, the Aja Kong match. Not a whole lot going on here. Very uneventful show, as you pointed out, in the ring. Uh, just getting over all the in-your-house matches. So kudos there because there is some storyline here with Brett and Backland or Brett and Davy Boy. We did see Diesel run out to make the save earlier against Owen Hart. So they are trying to play up some of the matches. Uh, we, we got the promo from Sid and the Kid about the tag match. So that's really what this show was meant to do. It didn't really make me want to watch many of the matches, uh, storyline-wise anyway, but that's pretty much what this show was built around. Did you? What, what was your segment of the night? 
I, I initially put down the Brett Backlund match, but I'm going to change it here. I'm going to go with the Aja Kong match. I, I was very entertained by that match. Just a lot of the moves that she was doing to Asari. And um, Asari did her part. The Sky Twister press is still awesome to see. Um, and then that back end, she actually uh, <laughs> she connected on that one. And it was definitely... It was very dangerous and very impactful. So, yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm with you, though. They did do a solid job of building the pay-per-view. Whether I want to see it or not, it doesn't matter. They put in the effort to push the show. Uh, and I always give a company kudos for that because if you're trying to get people to pay for it, you better put your best foot forward. And I I don't know if this is their best foot, but they this is what they're working with right now. So it had to be their best foot because nothing else was going to really work. So, yeah, I, they did a good job of that. Yeah, my segment tonight, uh, once again, goes to the ladies. It, it did on the last episode of Monday Warfare, one of those episodes where there was the, the tag match on both shows, Nitro and Raw, and I'm going to do it again here this week. Unfortunately, I know this is the last time I'm going to be able to say that on either company for the most part. So, uh, yeah, but I, I, easily the best match of the night wrestling-wise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Owen match was just a squash. Jeff Hardy was really nothing at this point. Uh, just an 18-year-old youngster trying to make a name for himself. Obviously, he eventually does here. So I, I got to go with the Aja Kong match. At no point did I have Bretton Backlund down. This is my favorite match of the night, just to point that out. So no worries there. And the ratings are in. Monday Nitro, once again, ran about nine minutes long to get the advantage of having the extra quarter hour at the end factored into the rating. DeMeltz notes, it's a great trick, and if they do it continually, Nitro should consistently beat Raw in the ratings. And here this week, Monday, Nitro ties its record high, doing a 2.6 rating. Again this week, that's back-to-back weeks, and that's the third time they've done a 2.6 this week, and a 3.7 share, holding its rating steady, while Raw, with a slight uptick itself, did a 2.5 and a 3.4 share. Last week, Raw did a 2.4. This week, a 2.5. Nitro stays steady at 2.6. Nitro gets the win. 2.6 to 2.5 here over Monday Night Raw. So once again, WCW wins the ratings this week. Some of that likely to that quarter hour overrun. But you can do that when the guys that owns the wrestling company also owns the channel it's airing on. Advantage, WCW. And the real winner this week, Steve, for me, has to be WCW Monday Nitro. Plenty of stuff on the show that stuck out to me. Raw was really ho-hum from top to bottom. You can argue that the Aja Kong match was fun, which it was. But outside of that, nothing on WWF Raw was entertaining. I don't want to go back and ever watch any of that again. Meanwhile, on Nitro, just a fun bunch of little things sticking out. The Guerrero-JL match, the whole Orndorff thing, like I pointed out, my segment of the week. And even the tag match at the main event was decent. So Nitro, for me, overall, way, the way better product. Yeah, I went with Nitro as well. I thought it was close because there was some entertaining stuff on Raw, like the women's match. I like the sit interview. Just the little things that they were doing to uh, push the pay-per-view, not necessarily the action. It was a solid show as far as getting that pay-per-view over. But yeah, I went with Nitro. Again, I've said it hundreds of times. I love the Who, who Can You Trust storyline they have going. Maybe a little bit overplayed, you know, childish at, so, at some points, but I always enjoyed it. And when I go back and rewatch Nitro, I, I, I like it. So um, the main event, plus, you know, you got JL and Eddie back, uh, the Paul Orndorff segment, things like that. So 
all in all, top to bottom, Nitro is definitely better. Moving on to WCW Monday Nitro for December 17th in Augusta, Georgia, at the Civic Center. You have 8,100 fans in attendance, but only 3,000 paid. And again, that's unfortunate because this is a double taping. Next Monday night is Christmas night, December 25th. Initially, Monday night or WCW wasn't going to air a Monday Nitro that night, but realizing that Raw wasn't, they decided to go for the throat. At this point, Eric Bischoff really thought he had Raw and Vince McMahon and the WWF on the ropes, and he decided last minute, we are going to have Monday Nitro next week. We're going to compete against nobody. We're going to get all the ratings on Christmas, what, what's out there anyway on Christmas anyway. And so they tape a Christmas episode tonight on December 18th. Now, don't ask me if they aired them out of order again like they did before because I couldn't find any information that said such. So they might have aired them in order this time. I'm not really sure there. But two shows at once again this week and only 3000 paid out of an 8,100-seat arena. So it is what it is. And as we go to the announcers, it's Pepe this week in a sombrero. But that's not the important part of the raw or excuse me, the Nitro opening this week, Steve. This is the big storyline here. As Eric Bischoff kicks off the show and begins to talk, Alundra Blaze from the WWF appears behind the announcers. Yes, Alundra Blaze, uh, who just competed at the Survivor Series, who just appeared on Raw just a couple weeks ago in a tag team match. She appears here on WCW, and the reason for that, as I pointed out, December 13th, she was alerted her contract had expired that day. She would not be renewed. And here we are five days later, and Eric Bischoff has made another coup. He has gotten a lunge of blaze, but I don't know that that would have necessarily upset Vince McMahon. What does probably upset, not probably, what did upset Vince McMahon is what happens next. A lunge of blaze announces herself as Medusa. She is Medusa, and she always has been Medusa. The she then holds up, oh my goodness the WWF Women's Championship belt. And she introduces it as such. This is the WWF Women's Championship belt. And she walks off screen and grabs a a, a trash can, Steve, and holds it up. And she says, this is what I think of the WWF Women's Championship belt and drops it right in the trash can. And I would have grabbed audio here, but it really requires the video to get this over. A lot of this is very visual. But yeah, it's a really great segment out and it really came out of nowhere it blew me away when it happens probably the biggest thing easily since lex luger made the jump it wasn't so much alundra blaze popping up here as medusa which was still a big deal because she had just been on raw a couple weeks ago we we didn't know she was gone we just saw aja kong last week on raw and we're assuming she's in a feud with alundra blaze at this point so for her to pop up here big deal for her to have the wwf women's title on their show huge deal for her to throw it in a garbage can, insane. Yeah, this is one of those defining moments of the Monday Night War. Um, and it happened, what, four months into their run? <laughs> so, yeah, definitely earth-shattering. Like you said, not necessarily Medusa showing up, but dropping the belt in the trash. It, it took WWF years to get that stink off of that. Some people would even say it took them up until the women's evolution or revolution that they had uh, with Charlotte and those girls from NXT uh, to get the the aura and the mystique around that title. I don't know if it's even there, but they like to think so. Um, But yeah, this was, this was like you said, man, this was earth shattering. And uh, as a kid, I I don't think I understood the significance of what she was doing. 
I was like, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't like, holy hell, that's the WWF title or whatever. I don't think it registered with me that way. It was just like, why is she on here when she was just on Raw a couple of weeks ago? That was, that was more how I was thinking. But as I watch it and just the history of it and what it means, it, it's incredible the links that Bischoff would go to to literally kill the WWF. Nothing was off limits to him. Right. And, and it uh, should this be. Is, it this should... is the first. Yeah, yeah. This is the You're first helmet, helmet. This is the first haymaker thrown outside of Luger, like you said. So, very, very impactful. Uh, just, just insane to even think about. Yeah, and it should be noted that Medusa's went on record many, many times that she did not want to do this. She was basically yeah. coaxed into doing this by Eric Bischoff. So, this was certainly a Bischoff thing. This wasn't Medusa just looking for revenge. She just wanted a job. But Bischoff right. said, "Do you still have that title?" And she said she did. She hadn't given it back yet. And so this was this was Eric's idea. And it I think it took a little discussion, but he got Medusa to do it and she did it. And she announces that WCW is where the big boys play. And now it's also where the big girls play. And it was a great start. It's unfortunate there's really no follow up. I don't really remember Medusa appearing on TV very much at all in the next several months. So it's like Bischoff signed so. her and then he, he didn't really know what to That's do with that. her. Yeah, yeah, and I think I don't think they do a women's title until around the Great American Bash. Yeah, I don't even. Uh, yeah. I remember right. She has the she has like a career match against uh, Akira Hokuto at the Great American Bash. I think in '96. So they they don't do much of anything with it, and I don't even think they give her the belt out of the gate. I think it goes to Hokuto. So I think that he just used her. And I, I got to ask this before you. I know you got a bunch of notes here on what what exactly went down, but I got to ask. Yeah, do you think? just a little bit that Bischoff regrets this. Cause if you think about it, this is really the reason why it didn't happen with Bret Hart. You know, if, if he didn't do this and the loss, I don't, never happened. I don't think Eric Bischoff think, regrets it because think, I think he's went on record numerous times saying that he doesn't regret anything he did. He would do it again. Well, I know. Well, yeah, I know that, but I'm talking about like if, if he knew what was going to come down the pipe two years later or a year later oh, um, with, Brett? with Brett, where he could have possibly done this with the WWF. Title. I don't think that was ever going to happen. I think Vince, when it comes to the world title was a little bit smarter than this, this women's stuff, which is an afterthought. He probably thought WCW had no interest, you know, in, in right, the world yeah, title, maybe no right. interest in, maybe no interest in Medusa for that matter. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he knew. Awesome. He, I mean, he worked out the deal. He helped Brett go get that deal in WCW. So he knew where yeah. Brett was going. So, yeah, I think it would have been a little different no matter what. Yeah, and I, I do yeah. have a bunch. Oh, go on. I was just going to say, I think it was the lawsuit with Flair coming to WWF with the belt that really hindered Bischoff's ability to try this again with Brett Hart in the belt. I, I think that's the one that actually was the sticking point, not necessarily this one. I, I, this one probably just enhanced the one that they had already after Flair took the belt in 91, I think that's the one, but, uh, no, it is interesting. Yeah. And I did have a bunch of notes here, but I actually went over most of these notes when we were covering the Aja Kong match back on raw. But I did want to point out that the narrative that's out there all these years of how dare Medusa go and do this to the WWF, this company that had hired her and given her a job and given her the women's title and put her on some pay-per-views, some TV here and there. I want to make it very clear that the story that's always often let, uh, left out is that she wasn't under contract for the WWF because the WWF fired her. They basically told her, 
hey, your contract's not being renewed. You're done. Out of, out of the blue. There, within a week, she, she was, I don't know if she was given a week's notice. And she's done. She has no job. She needs to make money. She needs to put food on the table. You can argue what you want about her dropping the, the belt in the garbage, but as far as Medusa showing up on Nitro and doing what's asked of her employer, she had no other option. She didn't jump ship like Lex Luger. She had she was told, you know, you're you're done here. Your services are no longer needed. So it was either go to WCW or just have no job or no real job in the in the business anyway to, you know, six figures or or five figures or you know, high five figures or whatever she's getting paid here. So I mean, you can like you can argue again, you know, about the bell getting dropped in the garbage and whatever, but if if that's what you have to do in order to become employed, I'm looking over here and going these people just fired me. They treated me like garbage. That's all I have to do yeah. to sign a contract for a year or two and, and guaranteed pay to have my house, to have a house, to be able to eat. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I don't, I can see it. Like you yeah, obviously you didn't get the two weeks notice or whatever the case may be, but um, I mean, it has been a year and a half, <laughs> almost two years pushing her uh, as the face of their women's division. I mean, she's ran through everybody. And really, she's the only one that was there. It was just a bunch of women, a revolving door of women coming into Challenger. You know, the Bullinacanos, Bertha Faze, things like that. So, I mean, she was the women's division. That was it. And um, just to say, sorry, we don't need you no more. It's in Japan, and I'm sure there's a lot of bitterness. And I'm sure she, she says she doesn't want to do it, and she probably I know she didn't want to do it. But it probably didn't take a lot of... <laughs> convincing five days after being told you're fired after they just spent two years, you know, building you up and just send you on your way with a, basically nothing. I, it's just a very, very crazy situation. And it, it's just, like I said, it's just incredible. The links Bischoff would go to, to it's not even winning a war, or putting on a good show. It's just trying to take out Vince McMahon. And that, right. that's what his goal was. And that's, that's part of the reason why they end up where they end up. But, um, we have plenty of time to talk about that throughout these episodes. And you got to remember this is December 18th. So it's actually the day after the in your house pay-per-view. So raw is live and reports were that Vince McMahon had found out about the whole storyline with Medusa and the women's title, uh, through a technician, uh, a WWF technician had alerted Vince what was happening on nitro early on in the raw broadcast. And it was said that Vince was stunned to the point that, he seemed to be tired and distracted on the live show during commentary. I didn't really notice that, you know, that could be a, a Meltzer narrative too, but can you imagine being Vince McMahon and you're, you're live on raw and you get, you get word in your, your earpiece of what's going on over there on nitro and you can't do anything about it. It's got to drive you crazy. Yeah. I couldn't imagine being in that situation. And to be honest with you, I'm surprised it took him so long to remove himself from commentary. Um, I think after this, like me personally, you're like, you know what? I got to give up my seat. Somebody else needs to be out there. I need to be back here figuring out what what the hell I can do. Because I think if he's back there, he could probably came up with something on the fly. Maybe. I don't know. But you have that opportunity when you're not sitting at the desk. When you're sitting at the desk, you're stuck. And, yeah, uh, yeah he, he had to have been going nuts just the way Vince McMahon we all know how he is so I couldn't imagine how he was feeling that day or that night 
Yeah, my only issue with the entire uh, situation here, we kicked Nitro off with a bang with, with the Lundra Blaze or Medusa now dropping the title in the garbage can. She walks away, and it felt like 10 seconds later, Mongo brings out refri- Refrigerator Perry because William Refrigerator Perry just happens to be here. And so he shows up, doesn't even say a word, just stands behind Mongo. Um, couldn't you have gotten this in later in the show and given the Blaze segment you know, more meaning? I just, I had a problem. <laughs> it just felt like they didn't really dismiss the Mandusa situation. But it just felt like, all right, time to move on. That's over with. It's Crash TV. The Medusa story's over. Let's just bring a Refrigerator Perry up here. And there's there's no reason for him to be up there other than for them to say, hey, look who we got here. Because he doesn't speak. There, nothing happens. So it just felt like, couldn't we have done this like in between some matches somewhere? Like you said, man, it's just Crash TV. One, one spot to the next to the next. Like They're not wasting any time. It's just crazy. Let something marinate. Let us soak something in uh, and and enjoy it. And I, I think that's one of the biggest issues that Nitro has is they don't let you enjoy anything too long before they go right into the next segment. And I think uh, even on the on the on the Orndorff thing, I don't want to go too long here, but on the Orndorff thing, they go to one commercial, they come back, he's still working on him. Obviously, you don't want to take too much time, but. You have guys coming down the aisle ready for the next match as if uh, whatever. It's an afterthought. He's getting stretched out. Well, let's go to the ring. And yeah, it's I, like, and I agree with you. It's, it's but you know, on a one hour show, it's almost like, what can you do? You almost have yeah, to do yeah, things like hour. that. Yeah. I was happy that they cut away to this match. However, it's Ric Flair taking out Eddie Guerrero. And if you remember, we were supposed to get this match a couple weeks ago, but uh, Brian Pillman wound up replacing Ric Flair in that match. So, but we do get it here this week. And I'm pretty happy for that. Fun spot early on. Ric Flair gets cocky, turns his back to Eddie Guerrero, struts and gives a big woo. But Eddie Guerrero drop kicks Flair to the back and takes Flair down to the mat. And it's Eddie's turn to strut and give a big woo. And I thought this was awesome shit as Flair sells it so well. His facials, the camera cuts to Ric Flair sitting on his ass as Eddie Guerrero woos in Ric Flair's face and struts across the ring. Flair's facials were just tremendous here. Great stuff from Ric Flair there. Flair takes control with a foot to the face in the corner, and Eddie hits the deck hard. Ugh, you can guess who said that. Eddie Guerrero with a tornado DDT, and then he walks the ropes into a flying Rana. I thought it was fun watching Ric Flair take tornado DDTs and flying Ranas from the top rope here in 1995. I don't know that Rick, the Nature Boy had ever uh, experienced these moves before, so it was fun seeing Ric Flair be able to adapt and take these bumps. Eddie goes up top. Ric Flair falls into the ropes, and Eddie Guerrero takes a bump all the way out to the floor, selling his previously injured knee injury. And figure four time by Ric Flair as Eddie sold his knee, but Eddie won't give it up. Ric Flair even starts slapping Eddie while he's in the figure four, but Guerrero just won't submit. He won't say die. And Flair even starts grabbing the ropes behind the referee's back, and eventually Eddie Guerrero passes out from the pain, but he wouldn't quit. Ric Flair does get the win. In seven minutes and 34 seconds. And oh my God, if Eddie was this ready five years earlier when Flair was still in his prime prime. Oh my God, because Flair was really good here with Eddie, but he was a little slower than the Ric Flair of old. Like he was getting ready for all the moves, but it just wasn't as such a fast pace as Eddie could have went. I think it could have been amazing if they both been in their primes at the same time, needless to say. But this was fun here. I, I really enjoyed it. And they... And Eddie saves face. There's no uh, 
issue here jobbing to someone the caliber of Ric Flair who's getting ready to go on to fight for potentially the world heavyweight title at Starcade. So, yeah, man, it was a good match in my book. Yeah, this was an awesome match to start the show. Like, you, nothing's marinating, man. You go from Medusa to the fridge to this match, and it's like, Jesus, slow down. But, yeah, this is an awesome match. It's very fun. I'm with you. Give me, like, 91, 92, maybe even, like, if you can go even further back, 89, 90, Ric Flair. Oh, Lord. They would have blew the roof off the building um, if Flair could move as quick as Eddie was at this point. But, uh, yeah, this is a – Heenan, again, doing a tremendous job on commentary, getting Eddie Guerrero over. I mean, he doesn't care if they're good or bad. He sees the talent. He recognizes the talent. And uh, Flair's his boy. So when he sees Flair struggling with somebody, he's going to take care of him and get him over. He did an excellent job there. And, again, just a, just an awesome match. And like you, man, I, I wish there was more of this out there of them, too. Just so good. Promo time in the ring as Mean Gene tries to interview Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, but Rick wants to keep stomping on Eddie Guerrero, and Gene yells, Hey, cut that out! And Mean Gene yelling at Ric Flair, reprimanding Ric Flair for attacking Eddie Guerrero during the promo. But the promo goes on. Arn Anderson says he respects Paul Orndorff, but when you jump on one horseman, you jump on all the horsemen. Uh, basically a message to anyone who wants to screw with Brian Pillman here. Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart come in. Sullivan is mad about Pillman's comments last week, mocking the Dungeon of Doom. Sullivan tells the horseman to keep Pillman on a short leash. Ric Flair says, hey, devil, there's no problem. Don't worry about Brian Pillman. We got him under control. Arn Anderson says, Arn Anderson begs to differ. There is a problem. If Kevin comes in here after Kevin, uh, if Kevin comes in after Brian Pillman, he's coming after all the horsemen. So now we're starting to see seeds planted between the horsemen and the dungeon of doom. So we have all the baby faces at the top having issues with one another. And now maybe the heel factions have issues with one another, all thanks to the wild and crazy Brian Pillman. Uh, I guess if if we're all can't get along, we're all going to get it on. I guess that's kind of how it feels here. I don't know. Like it, it seems a little bit overdone. Like, like everybody not knowing who they can trust and things like that. But at the same time, it's different. I mean, factions, they're kind of blurring that line between good guys and bad guys. And it doesn't really matter if you're good or bad. You don't, you still got issues. You still got people you got to work with and try to get along with and trust. And if you can't do that, then you're going to have issues. It doesn't matter if you're a good guy or bad guy. So it's definitely different booking. It's not what you're accustomed to seeing to where everybody's kind of feuding with everybody, so to speak. And um, it can get a little, tedious and uh overdone but at the same time it it could be entertaining too i must admit i I would be intrigued to see a rick flair zodiac match i can only imagine how fun that might be (laughs) of all the people (laughs) yes um so we've seen medusa show up here on the announce desk we've seen the refrigerator show up here at the announce desk and now craig pitbull Pittman even shows up at the announce desk He's asking, and he, oh, by the way, he shows up in a Marine Corps uniform, his uh, Marine uniform, and he's looking for Bobby Heenan to be his manager. Bobby Heenan explains to the Pitbull that Heenan's been retired for, well, really over four years now. Uh, he said, but he will refer Pittman to someone like, like a Jimmy Hart. If I was Craig Pittman, I would say no, no thank you. 
But uh, it is what it is. And Pittman says something along the lines of, if, if he doesn't find a manager soon, he's, he can't be held responsible for what he does. Uh, I have no idea what was, what was the, the idea here. I know where we end up with the storyline, but it's uh, kind of odd. Yeah, it, by the time it gets to the resolution, it, it, he's pretty much useless. Uh, this this storyline basically cuts the it's like cutting your nose off in spite of your face. Like it, it totally makes you not even give a shit about Craig Pitt, and nobody wants him. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for those people who haven't watched this from twenty five years ago, but. Essentially, everybody turns it down. It gets even worse next week. So, um, yeah, it makes no sense. Back to the ring, and it's Lex Luger, led to the ring by Jimmy Hart, taking on Marcus Bagwell of the American Males. He's accompanied by Scotty Riggs for whatever reason. Seems kind of heelish here, having a wrestler accompanied by another wrestler to take on a heel who has no wrestler in his corner. But anyways, Bagwell sends Lex to the floor early on, drop kicks him off the ropes, bumps him back to the floor, and mocks Lex Luger with his own must, uh, most muscular pose. Now Lex hits the deck, and he hits the deck hard on a backdrop, says Eric Bischoff. Marcus Bagwell pretty much dominates the entire match, but lands on Luger's knees when trying a splash, and Lex Luger with two simple moves, a power slam and a torture rack to pick up the win. Three minutes and seven seconds. I thought this was a a fun, quick match. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Luger wasn't out there long enough to insult anyone, (laughs) so that's always a plus. But no, yeah, and Bagwell stayed. Match. Yeah, they they left Bagwell on the offense for basically the entire duration, mostly basically most of the three minutes, and it was pretty fast paced for the most part. Promo time with Mean Gene Okerlund. Now he's going to talk to Lex Luger and Jimmy Hart. Lex Luger continues to insist that the Macho Man has given up. He has submitted to the total package, but none of it really counts, Stevie. Put him in the torture rack at Halloween Havoc. That wasn't a match. Put him in the torture rack outside the ring at World War Three. There was no win there. Put him in the armbar in the ring at World War III, but the Macho Man had passed out or been knocked out by that point. So, But one thing Luger does have a point on here is he had Savage beat. He may have cheated, but he did have Savage pinned here a couple weeks ago on Nitro. If it wasn't for Hulk Hogan causing that DQ win for Lex Luger, Luger could be the champion. And so Lex just continues to look towards Starcade and his match with Randy Savage and continues to ignore his match in the World Cup. And he continues to not really emphasize anything on his opponents in the triangle match. He's just assuming he's going to be seeing a Ric Flair to get to the match with Savage. So um, Luger has a one-track mind here, and it's the match with with, with Randy Savage, and that's his only that's the only thing on his mind. Upcoming on this week's episode of WCW Saturday Night TV Champion Johnny B. Bad battles Arn Anderson. VK Wall Street takes on Alex Wright. Craig Pittman up against his former foe, the Cobra, plus Lex Luger in the ring, and an interview with Sting. And speaking of Sting, it's back to the ring. It's Sting taking on Earl Robert Eaton of the Blue Bloods, accompanied to the ring by Jeeves. Jeeves, the future, or excuse me, the former mascot of uh, Wildcat Willie on Saturday night. This was a nothing match. It's unfortunate to see Bobby fall down the ladder so far here. Eaton with his uh, infamous backbreaker, however, but misses a diving knee drop. Stinger takes over very quickly with the Stinger splash. Scorpion Deathlock gets to win 3 minutes, 55 seconds. I would pay to see this in 1989. <laughs> oh, Not sure. 1995. No, it's, it's really unfortunate to see Bobby even out there in this situation here. 
Uh, but we do get a promo. Mean Gene Okerlund interviews Sting in the ring. So we, so Steve, we saw Luger out here just a little bit ago, and he all he wanted to talk about, not even necessarily the triangle match, he just wanted to talk about as if he had already won, the, as you pointed out, the, the triangle match. He wanted to talk about facing Randy Savage for the world title at Starcade. Well, Sting's out here now, and apparently he doesn't realize he's in the World Cup as well because he also doesn't reference <laughs> the entire premise of the pay-per-view, the Best of Seven series. He just wants to talk about the triangle match. Uh, Sting would like to be six-time champion. I couldn't believe that he had been five-time champion up to this point. I thought he had miscounted. <laughs> I, I didn't realize Sting was a five-time champion here by 1995, but that's what he says. He looks to be six-time champion at Starcade, and nobody giving any love to the World Cup. No, absolutely not. And to be honest with you, it almost feels like the World War Three pay-per-view where they was just basically selling the whole thing for the Battle Royal. That makes sense. And here, they're just selling the triangle match and then your world title match. They don't really care about the, the New Japan. They kind of started it with Sonny Ono buying, you know, uh, what was it, Pro? Oh, some yeah. of the Pro show. And uh, and then they just dropped it. Like, they showed him in the crowd once, and that's it. Like, they haven't been seen since. So, um, but yeah, I was, with you, I was like, five-time champ already, really? So I started thinking, okay, Great American Bash. I know he beat Vader. And uh, he beat Luger, so there's three. And I, I, I don't. Did he beat Vader twice? For I don't know. I don't know the WCW history like I do the WWF. But I started thinking about. It. I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And I was like, damn, five times already. Never would have yeah. guessed. Yeah, it just kind of threw me off here in 1995 when he said that. But yeah, so Sting, he has potentially three matches at Starcade, but only references the triangle match here. And obviously, if he wins that, he can go on to fight Macho Man for the world title. Everybody ignoring the best of seven World Cup. And the funny thing about all of this is that was what the entire show was originally going to be built around. They threw in this triangle match gimmick much later on beyond the idea. So it's just really funny here. Uh, we go back to the ring, though, for the big main event. And this is a huge one. And it was actually a pretty good match, too. It's WCW champion Macho Man Randy Savage taking on the Giant coming to the ring by Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan. Macho Man comes at the Giant 100% trying to use a sleeper to take him down, trying to slam the Giant to no avail. The Giant dominates and looks great doing it. I couldn't even believe that he's a rookie, that he's green here. They really hide uh, some of the limitations that he has at this point as far as being a wrestler goes. But at the same time, he's just really good at what he does. And they do a spot on the outside where the Giant presses the Macho Man back into the ring over the top of the ropes. And then the Giant climbs to the top rope, and this is, before he was told to stop doing it, I guess. Giant comes off the top rope with a giant splash. Of course, he misses, but what a sight it was. And just how good was Paul White in 1995? As the Giant goes down and misses the splash, the Macho Man goes up and drops the big elbow off the top rope. And it's one, two, but the Giant throws Savage six feet in the air as he kicks off. Savage sells that great. The Giant then, again, impressive, drop kicks the Macho Man to the outside where they begin to brawl, and the Giant removes the mats on the outside, looks to suplex Savage on the floor. This is a really great spot, Steve. They really pulled it off well. The Giant picks Savage up in a uh, big uh, vertical suplex, and Savage grabs hold of the ropes so that the Giant takes the bump all on his own, the suplex bump, onto the concrete floor there. And Savage looks like he's going to take over, but the Giant pops up after briefly selling, and he goes in the ring, grabs Savage by the throat, and it's choke slam time. 
but instead of making the cover, the Giant wants to mock Hulk Hogan a little more and hits the big leg drop before covering, and Hulk Hogan runs in as his super fan in the ring, or excuse me, uh, in the front row, Roddy Hogan as he's known. Roddy Hogan out there, all, I was wondering why he was even there, and he's, he's just waiting for Hogan's run in here as the Giant hits the Hulk Hogan leg drop, and it's right away Hulk Hogan to the ring, to the rescue, causing yet another disqualification, enabling Savage to retain the title. Of course, Hogan attacking the Giant here with a chair. Match went ten and a half minutes. Really good match. Shit ending. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm really get, I'm I'm a Hogan fan. Everybody knows that by now, but I'm getting tired of it. And I, I you know, at, at first Nitro starts and you, okay, Hogan's gonna be here. Just how bad is it gonna get? And by the end of this year, oh my god, uh, the best thing that ever happened is what happens at the beginning of next week's show, <laughs> and uh, that's when he gets suspended. But um, he needs to go away for a little bit. It's so far overdone. It's so terrible. Uh, but the match itself was definitely cool. Uh, Savage is awesome. He knows how to adapt and make any opponent look good. I don't think I've ever seen him not have a decent match with any type of wrestler. Uh, I really like that spot where Savage did land on the apron. I remember I, that sticks out because I, I don't know if I've ever seen it again. Uh, to be honest with you, yeah, something like that. Really odd that nobody's ever tried this this spot again. Uh, but he, they do it so well. I mean, it works out perfect. Yeah, it looks like a spot it's you could small. easily easily screw up. But it's 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 hard to really describe without actually showing the video. You guys can go check it out if you want on the WWE Network or if you already have you know your own copy of the the show. But it's a really fun spot. The giant picks him up in a really huge suplex. And on the way back, Savage kind of locks his arm, his free arm, and maybe his leg around the ropes because they're right next to the ring apron. And Giant takes the bump all on its own right on the concrete. Really good really good spot there. Yeah, good, good awesome stuff. But, yeah, outside of the finish, this is a really good match. And it's crazy to think this is only, like, the Giants' maybe third or fourth match in his career. Right. And he's going 10 minutes with Macho Man and looking awesome. Like, he doesn't look out of place. Obviously, Anybody the size of the Giant is not going to look out of place in a main event match just because of how big he is. That's going to give him a lot of leeway. But going in there and actually handling his own and being decent and doing things that you would never expect somebody to see, like him doing that splash is just insane. He's so big. It looks like he's going to cover the whole ring when he lands. Yeah. Um, it, lo- <laughs> it looks it, like an LJN so toy awful. jumping off of a Hasbro uh, top rope. It's, it just looks crazy. It, yeah, just a very fun match, though. So Hogan runs in with the chair, blasts the Giant pretty hard to draw the disqualification, giving the Giant the win. Probation my ass. Uh, we learned a few weeks ago that Ric Flair, supposedly Ric Flair, the Giant, and Hulk Hogan were all on probation for things they've been doing. Last week, Ric Flair tried to murder a man with a spike pile driver on the concrete. This week, Hogan runs in with a chair, and this is just insane. Talk about sticking it up somebody's ass. Hulk Hogan interferes with a chair, hits the giant with it repeatedly. And it, was, it wasn't like the last time he attacked the giant with a chair. He made up for it here. Every single one of these counted. They all made noise. <laughs> and Hogan even nails yeah. Nick Patrick with the, the nasty chair shot. He tosses Randy Anderson to the mat, keeps nailing the giant with the chair in and out of the ring, uh, making up for last time indeed. And Kevin Sullivan is the smart one here. He keeps running away from the chair. And Hogan even nails Doug Dillinger across the back with a chair, the security Doug Dillinger. So 
for whatever reason, the fridge and Mongo are the ones that come down to ringside to try to talk sense into the Hulkster. And I feel like this is just another way to get, get the fridge on the show because this accomplishes nothing. Uh, uh, but the fridge and Mongo down there trying to calm down Hulk Hogan, who has went apeshit crazy with the chair at this point. And obviously he does not fear probation. No, no, absolutely not. He doesn't give a shit. Probation my ass. I don't care. <laughs> uh, did you see Fridge? Like, he damn near eats it. Like, he trips over somebody. or He's so huge. Right. He, he like, stumbles over somebody. He's about to fall face first. I think he does fall down to a knee. Uh, so it kind of <laughs> takes away from it a little bit, him coming out there, just because he did do that. But, yeah, I think even Mongo comes back. He's like, somebody's got to talk some sense into him and stop him from using that chair. And it might as well be me. And he's like, if it's going to keep getting like this, he's kind of hinting that he's going to get in the ring himself and take care of it. So he's kind of laying the groundwork there for possibly getting in the ring himself. But just, I don't know. Hogan's just not giving a shit what's going on probation. He doesn't care. And he says as much here in the promo as we have Gene Okerlund in the ring, trying to interview the Hulkster and the macho man. Gene thinks Hulk could get suspended. You think Gene? And then it's the giant trying to come back out. The giants in the Iowa is being held back by Kevin Sullivan and Craig Pittman of all people. And this felt like uh, maybe they just saw Craig sitting around and they're like, Hey, I need somebody else to come out here and do this angle because Pittman was just in a Marine uniform just moments ago. And now he's back out here with a, a cutoff t-shirt. So, so I thought that was kind of funny as Pittman and Sullivan are the ones holding the giant back here. Kevin Sullivan can't run this time. And Hogan comes running full force with the chair Wax the giant some more with the chair. Wax Kevin Sullivan with the chair this time as well in the aisle way as they go running off. And talk about getting over the cheap way. Hulk Hogan just swinging the chair wildly. No care in the world where he hits or who he hits. Yeah, I did put down he got a pop finally. Uh, He finally got a pop in WCW. I guess it took killing somebody with the chair to the head. Well, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that, and I'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely it's um it's funny he's out here he's making the save again booking himself into the main event steve and then he has to have more activity afterwards and even gets his own promo to close the show and he gets to beat somebody up in the middle of the promo and come back and finish cutting the promo you can't book yourself any better than this it's ridiculous oh lord (laughs) i can't defend this i got nothing man (laughs) So Hogan oh, even points out that his name, he points this out to Randy Savage, that his name is still on the belt. I wonder why that is. Hulk is owed a title shot, he reminds the macho man. Well, maybe don't skip fucking pay-per-views and you'd be part of this triangle match, brother. Is, it, is that really it? Like, he just took himself out? Like, he didn't want to be a Starcade? Oh, no, I, he's probably filming something. I don't know what the hell is going on with him in real life. I just mean, I'm, I'm talking, I'm, I'm being funny here, Steve, but at the same time, I'm being serious. No, no, I, mean, I, no I was curious. It, it is odd that you missed the biggest pay-per-view of the year. It, it doesn't make sense. That's why I was curious if that was really the backstory. Just what, well, he's getting on. paid either way. Remember, yeah. you got to remember, he's being paid based on appearance, and he has X amount of pay-per-views that he works. So... It doesn't matter if he's working Bash at the Beach or he's working Starcade, he's getting the same pay. He's Hulk Hogan. So it's it's it makes no never mind him. He doesn't care what what Starcade was okay. to, you know, the the fans of, you know, the Crockett Country. It's Hulk Hogan, Steve. Remember that. I got you. Yeah, he's a <laughs> smart 
smart businessman. Uh, but I noticed here that the mustache is back. So the red and yellow came back at World War III, and now the mustache is back here just in time for Christmas. Hallelujah! The Hulkster is back. Now if he just gets back on those roids, it might, he might really look like Hulk Hogan again. We learned I don't know that, if he ever does. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Uh, eventually, eventually. N.W.O. Hogan at some point. But Randy Savage, we learn, wrestles Ric Flair next week. At least that's the way I understood it here in this promo. And what's the point of the triangle match at Starcade if Ric Flair's getting world title shots here on Nitro? Ric Flair shouldn't even... I would step out of the triangle match. Why do I need to do this? I'm going to fight you on, on, the, on the TV? I don't, why do I need to go through Lex Luger and Sting if I've already got myself a world title match on television? Uh, just more shit booking here. And uh, Hulk Hogan says uh, he warns Hulk Hogan has to put himself over just, just a little more, Steve, because if he hasn't done enough, he warns Mongo in the fridge. He says he respects Mongo and fridge on the football field, but never get in his way again, brother. And Hulk made sure to go over on this show repeatedly. Uh, he even came out during the pre-show, Steve, before the show went on the air uh, when, the, when the taping was dark. They're in Augusta. Hulk Hogan was born in Augusta, Georgia, believe it or not. And he came out and cut a big, long promo about being from Augusta, Georgia. And, and that's why he, I think it really aided in the big pops he was getting here all night because he was a hometown boy returning home here is the, the story Hogan tells to the fans before the show goes on the air. Just a way to try to get some babyface reaction. Uh, it's pretty sad when you're Hulk Hogan and you have to come out before the show <laughs> and con the, con the fans into cheering for you before the show goes on the air. It's, it's a scary situation to go from being the biggest name in the world to having to rely on tactics like this to get yourself over. He had, he had to do the Mick Foley cheap pop. <laughs> yeah. It was cool. Um, and you're Hulk Hogan. That is crazy to think about. Just crazy. It worked, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if it would have worked unless he had the chair shots to go with it. But, uh, yeah. Um, he did his best to get himself over at the end here. My, my biggest thing, and this is, uh, this is the entire career of Macho Man is living in the shadow of Hulk Hogan. Hogan would never, I, I don't know if he was, intimidated by macho man or what the deal was he never let macho man ever surpass him yeah at anything and um i don't know if that's just because he was afraid of what might happen if it did happen or what but man my god just let this dude have one title reign where you're not the focal point of it just leave him alone for six months <laughs> to let him yeah. be the focal point of a title run just one time yeah just go film happened. a movie just go yeah. film a movie and, and let Macho do his thing for just for a little while. I agree. Man, I feel bad for Macho. In death, Se though, he, I think he has surpassed Hogan in death, I think, which is sad. Right. Segment of the night, Steve. Was it uh, the abrupt debut of Alundra Blaze? Was it Ric Flair against Eddie Guerrero or Savage versus the Giant? A couple of really good matches here this week on Monday Nitro. And then just the big shocker to kick off the show with Medusa and the WWF women's title. Yeah, man, by the time I got to the end of this show, like I kind of forgot that Medusa even came out. I mean, she, I know she did that thing and it was huge, but man, it's like they had so much packed into this one hour show that it's crazy. And um, I didn't really care too much for the main event. I, I liked the last three or four minutes. 
for the most part. It was, it was, but it was a solid match. It wasn't the best, but it was good. So my favorite, my the thing I enjoyed the most was the Eddie Ray Flair match. I, I thought it was awesome. Flair, I don't know if there's anybody in this business that is on the pedestal that he's on as being one of the greatest of all time that gave as much as he did in the ring to opponents. Like we just watched the Brad Armstrong match on uh, on the grenade, and he gave him offense. And this is the middle of the title run, and he just made Eddie Guerrero look like a million bucks, and he didn't let him job out. He protected him, but still got himself over. And I don't know if there's anybody that has the career, the accolades, or anything that Ric Flair has that's willing to do that. And to me, that's that's just tremendous. And I, I really enjoy it here when he's working with guys like Eddie Guerrero and some of those other cruisers that he gets in the ring with at some point and just things like that. That's the best Ric Flair to me is when he's yeah. giving back a little bit. Yeah, and just real quick, too, before we move on, Ric Flair used to always get heat uh, in his early world title runs because he gave so much back to the mid-card guys or even the, the semi-main guys or the undercard guys or gave spots to the referees to bump him or things like that. He got a lot of heat from guys like Harley Race and probably Dory Funk and may- maybe Jack Briscoe. I-, I know it was some of the former world champions. They didn't like what Rick had made of the world championship. They took it very seriously. They always came off as world title, world beaters, world champions. You know, Bruno San Martino wasn't going in there and, and getting beat up by Baron Mikel Cicluna for two to three minutes before he took it home. You know, so it's it's a different world here in the, by the 1980s, and Ric Flair assisted in that uh, by allowing uh, all these guys to look good and still make himself look good in the end. So he was really good at doing that. It was just a, he helped change the business to a degree with, with the way you could main event and be world champion and still have good matches with the guys in the middle of the card. And that's what he's doing here. He's helping elevate guys like Eddie Guerrero uh, and beating them still. So Ric Flair still looks good coming out of this, as you pointed out, but it didn't hurt Eddie at all. It made Eddie look better. Eddie looked really good here. Yeah. And it was very hard for me to pick a segment because I vividly remember the whole Medusa thing. And that was easily the biggest thing. And I agree with you. By the time this show was over, I forgot this even happened. The Medusa situation happened on this episode because so much happened on this episode. Here in 2020, I forgot. Back when it happened, that was the only thing on my mind. I don't know that I was processing anything else on this show as the show was going on because I was still trying to make sense of how the hell a WWF wrestler appeared on WCW and took their their, their title and threw it in a garbage can. So that was easily. Hands down, back in 1995, the segment of the night for me. Now, that said, fast forward 25 years, it's still very meaningful. But again, there was just so much that happened. I even forgot that, like you said, that it would even happen on this episode. Uh, It's hard for me to say what I want to go with. I thought the Giant was really good for his size and for his lack of, uh, you know, your experience against Randy Savage there. Uh, but I also enjoyed Flair and Eddie Guerrero. It's really a toss-up between all three segments for me. I'm just going to have to go. You picked Eddie and Flair, so that's the safe one. So I, I feel like I don't have to pick that now. So I think I'm just going to stick with Medusa debuting simply because I know the impact it was way back when. That's what I would have told you 25 years ago, so that's what I'm going to stick with for right now. But to be honest with you, man, I don't think you can go wrong with any three of these segments. Just a really good night of Nitro. 
Yeah, I don't think so either. And to be honest with you, this is the best Nitro we've had in any show we've had in probably three or four weeks of TV. They've just the, been very flat and lackluster. Yeah, at the very least. Yeah. We're, we're going to move over to the USA Network and WWF Raw here for December 18th. But before we do, it's quick results from the In Your House 5 pay-per-view. From December 17th in Hershey Park Arena, Razor Ramon, Marty Jannetty beat the 1-2-3 Kid and Sid in 12 minutes and 22 seconds when Ramon pinned Sid after a bulldog off the middle rope. During the match, Goldust watched the match at ringside and talked about how masculine Ramon was and then gave Todd Pettengill a note to pass on to Razor which would later turn on to turn out to be a love letter to the bad guy. We would eventually see Razor read the letter and crumple it up and throw it away in disgust. Uh, so that situation has begun. Uh, next segment was very confusing. As ring announcer Manny Garcia announces coming from Knoxville, Tennessee, the nature boy Buddy Rydell or Laddell, it wasn't Landell, I'll tell you that much, but he announces uh, Buddy Landell and so one would assume at this point that Landell's simply getting a new name and he's about to make his debut in the company, which I popped for because up until this point, we didn't know he was here. But then Jerry Lawler cuts off the ring announcer and went to the ring for a surprise, which you would assume was Buddy Landell, right? No, it's Jeff Jarrett. So none of this is making any sense. Jeff Jarrett makes his return to the WWF and he has a plaque with him. I don't know if this is the Ain't I Great plaque or the Greater Than Great plaque or whatever the hell is going on here. But then Dean Douglas comes down to the ring, and he announces he has a bad back. And because of this, he has a replacement for his match tonight with Ahmed Johnson. And it's finally Buddy Landell to ringside. So I don't know what happened with all that. I was confused way back then. Still confused to this day how they screwed this all up. Poor Buddy Landell, though. He comes out to the old 1992 Ric Flair theme from the WWF does the job to Ahmed Johnson in a mere 42 seconds to the Pearl river plunge. And Douglas is even spanked by the paddle, his own paddle on the way out as Ahmed Johnson gets the win in 42 seconds. And the story here is that Dean Douglas was on the way out and he simply was trying to get out of working here. He said he had a bad back. I don't know if he did or didn't. I don't know how true that is, but he got out of the match and I guess from what I read, Vince and Jim Ross had basically pleaded with Shane all day to work this match, do the job on the way out. And, oh, his back's, my back's just hurting me too damn bad. You're going to have to pick somebody else besides the ranch fries to do the job for Ahmed Johnson. Fuck! Because he has to say that word. And then that's, and that's probably how it went. And I guess Buddy Landell just happened to be at this taping kind of looking for a job. And they go up to him and they go, Look, man, we're not trying to disrespect you or anything, but we need somebody to go out there and do a quick job for Ahmed because we're really trying to get this guy over. And Buddy just trying to get a job at the company, he says, sure, whatever. And he goes out here and does the job in 42 seconds to show he's a company man. And because of that, he gets a job with the company. Unfortunately, it doesn't last very long, and we're going to talk about that when we get into Raw. But post-match, Ahmed kills Buddy Landell, which really pissed me off, in 42 seconds. Jerry Lawler then interviews Ahmed at ringside, and they get into it, and eventually it's Jeff Jarrett who breaks a plaque over Ahmed's head. Ahmed no-sells it eventually, chases Jeff Jarrett to the back, so that feud's on as well. And it's back to the ring for a moment anyway. Triple H beats Henry Godwin in a hogpin match. This is also where Hillbilly Jim returns. He returns as referee here. Uh, Triple H winds up backdropping Godwin into the hogpen to lose the match. I caught one of the pig's names. It was Terry, as in Terry Balea, as in Hulk Hogan. 
I found that funny. Uh, Triple H gets the win here over Henry Godwin in the hog pin match, nine minutes. Owen Hart beats Diesel on a disqualification in four minutes, 34 seconds, when Diesel shoves the ref after using the jackknife powerbomb. So Diesel basically squashed Owen, but gets disqualified. I don't really think that saved Owen's face very well, but it is what it is. To the ring for a segment that I wish hadn't happened, Ted DiBiase tries to buy Savio Vega as his chauffeur, but instead, when Savio won't sell out, DiBiase reveals he's bought Santa Claus. And there's been some great angles with Santa over the years, Steve. There's Michael Hayes in Dallas and Jake Roberts in Florida, but this one, this ain't it. And Santa Claus turns heel and attacks poor Savio Vega. And eventually the, the mask or the, the, the beard and hat fly off. I don't think they were supposed to, to be honest with you. But they come off during the brawl, and it's, you can quickly see that it's Boo Bradley from the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Territory. And he's now Santa Claus, or Santa Claus, as we'll find out here in the WWF. Undertaker beats King Mabel in a casket match, 6 minutes, 11 seconds. Undertaker finally, after a year, gets the remnants of his urn back. So the Undertaker regains his power here in 1996. And finally, Bret Hart retains the WWF title by pinning the British Bulldog. 21 minutes, 9 seconds. Pretty damn good match. Lamahi Straw Cradle by the Hitman gets the win. Big blade drop, big blade job early on in the match. Heavy blood by Bret Hart. It pours all over the uh, the mat on the outside. In fact, when I first saw it way back when, I thought it was fake. I thought it was a blood capsule. I didn't think anybody could bleed that much that fast. But it turns out that, no, Bret really did blade here, and we hadn't seen that in quite a long time, uh, certainly not to this degree. But Bret retains the title over the British Bulldog. To close things out, it had already been announced that the WWF champion, whomever it might be at the end of the inner house, would go on to face The Undertaker at the Royal Rumble. And we closed out the pay-per-view with The Undertaker backstage doing an interview when Diesel came out of nowhere and complained <clears throat> that he should be the one getting the title shot. He deserves a title rematch from the Survivor Series. And the pay-per-view goes off the air with Diesel and The Undertaker doing a stare-down. And that's where we are here as we kick off Monday Night Raw. On, on paper, it doesn't sound like a great in your house, but some of the matches delivered is entertaining. And... Um... Shane Douglas just learned from Shawn Michaels how to get out of uh, doing a match. So, uh, <laughs> good riddance, Steve Douglas. <laughs> yeah. Poor Buddy Landell, but it gets worse for Buddy here very quickly. As we move on to WWF Monday Night Raw, December 18th, we're now in Newark, Delaware at the Delaware State College Gym. They would never announce that again. Vince hates announcing being from places like this. It's Double J Jeff Jarrett in the ring. He's made his return. And tonight he's taking on Make a Difference, Fatu. And they this had to piss the roadie off. Jeff convinces the roadie to leave with him back in July, and Jeff pops back up here in December with the company, leaving the roadie behind in the USWA. And uh, we, we Jeff Jarrett also, I forgot to mention during the Inner House pay-per-view, Jeff had announced that he was the first entrant to throw his name into the hat for the Royal Rumble. Jeff Jarrett wearing the same carpet blue pants here that he wore when he left it in your house too. Don't ask me why I remember that. Jeff tries to lure Fatu in and nails a leaping DDT early on, but Fatu no-sells because his head is hard, because he's Samoan and shit. Fatu fires up, but Jeff quickly takes over the swinging neckbreaker. Fatu comes back, running diamond cutter, but sells his own shoulder. Kind of cool that they went for something out of the ordinary, that you you would hurt yourself trying a move, but I didn't think this, this was necessary here. And, uh, 
I didn't really buy into it. It wasn't really good. But Jarrett posts Fatu's shoulder to continue with the momentum. And then, but he, instead of working over the shoulder, he decides to try to go for the figure four. And it's Ahmed Johnson out and attacks Jeff Jarrett. And uh, Jeff Jarrett will get the win here by disqualification, five minutes and 45 seconds. Yeah, not a lot going on here. This is a decent little opener. But, uh, yeah, really nothing special. Well, handsome Doc Hendricks is in the crowd with Gorilla Monsoon. I wish I'd been in that crowd. I would love to have met Gorilla Monsoon here. And we learned that Bret Hart will take on the Undertaker at Royal Rumble, which we've already been told. Jeff Jarrett doesn't book this shit. I'm paraphrasing. Gorilla really doesn't say that, but it's basically what he says. Jarrett threw his name in the hat for the 30-man Royal Rumble. Well, Gorilla is throwing it out. Instead, Jeff Jarrett will take on Ahmed Johnson as part of the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. And uh, they promise that Rumble names are coming this weekend. How refreshing. Royal Rumble names announced a month before the pay-per-view. Go figure. And it's on to a Goldust promo as he talks Razor Ramon. He says Razor claims he oozes machismo. Well, Chico, let's ooze it together. Oh, my. <laughs> wow. The fun wow. begins, Steve. The fun begins. Oh, my goodness. It's uh, it's something. I mean, I, I was uncomfortable with this as a kid. I, I think I'm still a little uncomfortable with it. It's just so, so, so different for WWF to do something like this. And, uh, man, Goldust yeah, was something. It's certainly over the top. I, and it, it's, it should be noted that the, the Razor Ramon hated this. He was, uh, I guess you could. Oh, yeah call him homophobic he blamed it he said he had kids at home he didn't want them seeing this uh, but also he just hated it he fought tooth and nail to get out of this he wanted to go into a feud with triple h go figure because um, all the click wanted to do was work one another but he wanted out of this uh, with a passion to the point where you know there was the click started taking it out on, on dustin unfortunately dustin was just doing his job you know you should they shouldn't have taken it out on him but I guess because Razor was pissed, the entire clique was pissed. And so that's that's basically what was going on behind the scenes as this unfolded. I'm not surprised. Um, I'm sure Razor probably took some liberties. One of the biggest state statements that I remember is coming up on one of these right before the Rumble. And uh, I'm pretty sure Razor let, laid some in. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about that when that happens. That's but, a fun uh, one. Oh, yeah. That was another uh, yeah, yeah. edgy, edgy angle. Yeah, I love, I love that. That sticks. That was I huge when it, when it went down. Yeah, well, when we get to that, man, it's, it's going to be a fun time. First time I saw oh, yeah, wrestling, wrestling in the snow. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, it took me so long to figure out like what I thought of Goldust. Like he was so <laughs> far, he was so edgy, and you just didn't know what to think of him. Like. Is he really that, or is he just trying to get under the skin of Razor? Like, is that how he is, or right. what's the deal? Like, I, I didn't know. I, I was like, man, this dude is something. He's weird. He's all pudding. And uh, I don't know what to think of him. I, I didn't know what to think of him at all. Probably till Marlena came in and really kind of gave him a different side. Like, that's kind of when I kind of figured where they were going. But, man, this initial run is crazy. Yeah, we go back to in your house quickly here. It's uh, once again, it's a discussion of Diesel having issues with the Undertaker getting the title shot at the Royal Rumble. Of course, that'll play into some things later on here 
in the early part of 96. It's Doc Hendricks shilling the WrestleMania arcade game ringside as we go back to the ring for Bob Sparkplug Holly taking on the Nature Boy, Buddy Landell. So he's now with the company, and the story goes, they were so impressed with the fact that he stepped up and offered to do the job to Ahmed on pay-per-view in short fashion that they gave him a job. They signed him to a deal here with the WWF. Buddy Landell with Ric Flair's music once again, and it's a chop fest early on between the two. Uh, Jerry Lawler makes a joke on commentary during the match. He said, they're releasing a Bob Holly race car just in time for Christmas. It comes broken like Bob Holly's. <laughs> I picked up on that one too. I thought it was funny. Oh, Buddy man. Landell takes over control. It's nothing but the basics here from Landell, but, but we actually hear Buddy chants from the crowd. They're, they're s- small, but, but they're there. Bob winds up countering a backdrop with a DDT, makes the big comeback. Frankensteiner by Bob Holly, but he doesn't make the cover. Bob Holly misses a drop kick, and Buddy Landell finishes him off with the old patented corkscrew elbow drop to get the win in 6 minutes, 51 seconds. And hello, Buddy Landell. Bye-bye, Buddy Landell. It was shortly after this taping that he competed at a, another taping in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and on the way out of the door, slipped on some ice, tore some, uh, I'm not sure if it was an ankle injury or a knee injury, but it set him out for a few months, and he was never to return. So just as quickly as Buddy Landell arrived, he's gone here. I know he ends up doing a match against Bret Hart as well and does the job on TV, and he's also part of the first batch of participants announced for the Royal Rumble. Obviously, that doesn't happen either for Buddy Landell, so it's very unfortunate that he was finally getting his first real break since, geez, 1985 before Dusty fired him from Crockett. So it's uh, it's, it's very unfortunate here that Buddy Landell's gone just as quick as he came because uh, I always thought he was a, a pretty solid solid talent to have on the card. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's solid, guys. Just one of those trust issues, I'm sure. And that really does suck. And, and a freak injury or freak accident like that basically derailed his big shot here in the WWF. And uh, it's just unfortunate. He's back again. It's Brother Love. And this week's guest, it's the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. DiBiase has to go on here, and I'm, I feel like this is complaints causing this to happen. Uh, complaints from angry parents. Ted DiBiase announces that there is a Santa Claus. He was he was just kidding last night at the pay-per-view when he said there's no such thing as, as a real Santa Claus. However, DiBiase, he doesn't manage Santa Claus. He manages Santa Claus. That's Santa with an X and Claus with a K. And Santa Claus is not from the North. This is so fucking ridiculous, Steve. I can't believe this is this is this is fucking shit that DiBiase spewed from his mouth and and he kept character as he said it. Santa Claus is not from the North Pole. He's from the South Pole. Oh, my God. And it should be noted when he wrestles. Uh, he, he was in red and white at the pay-per-view, but by the time he wrestles the one match that he wrestles on Superstars, he's in, I think it's black and white. So he's changes. He's a heel, Santa Claus, mind you. Just utterly ridiculous, man. Just so bad. And what was the worst part? I kept wondering, okay, he was at the pay-per-view last night. Boo Bradley, Santa Claus, was at the pay-per-view. I'm assuming he's here at this Raw taping. But DiBiase's out here by himself. So if you didn't watch the pay-per-view, you have no idea what he's even referring to at this point. And so I'm wondering, why is he not in the ring with DiBiase for this promo? 
96, like I pointed out, could have been the year for the corporation. Sid, Kid, Steve Austin, but Santa Claus, it doesn't really fit here. And uh, DiBiase also makes mention here, just to close out the Brother Love show, that there will be a million-dollar champion, a new million-dollar champion in 1996. So planting the seeds for the debut of the Ringmaster upcoming. But the story here with the Santa Claus is, and I got to mention it here because he's gone, like much like Buddy Landell, but for a completely different reason. He's gone just as quick as he pops up, does a one-off, one match, a squash on superstars. I think this week, next week, whatever. And he's gone from the company by the end of the year because Vince realized, how the hell do you work a Santa Claus gimmick year-round? Well, no shit, Vince. How the hell do you work a fucking turkey into a, into a mascot year-round, too? I mean, you, you don't think of this shit before they debut, and then they're gone two weeks later. Uh, so that's the situation there. Poor Boo Bradley is not even given a different gimmick, just completely written out. And uh, Santa Claus is gone just as quick as he came as well. Obviously, like I said, for different reasons than Buddy Landell. But yes, so Santa Claus will never appear on Monday Night Raw. Thank God for that. No knock on Boo Bradley, Balls Mahoney, but uh, what a stupid idea. <laughs> Raw Bowl coming in two weeks' time. Jerry Lawler says it's next week, but Vince corrects him. It's in two weeks. What the hell's wrong with you? Goddamn, pal. And so in two weeks, it's the Raw Bowl coming to the USA Network. I can't wait for that. I haven't watched that in a long time. And to the ring, Intercontinental Champion, Razor Ramon defending against Yokozuna. And Goldust is out to watch the match along with his usher. forgot who the usher is, but he works for the company. I remember hearing that. Bruce Pritchard's mentioned that in the past. Yokozuna attacks Razor, but Razor clears the ring. Remember what I said about Yoko is good for what? The bonsai drop and taking that bump through the ropes to the floor? Well, he takes that bump through the ropes to the floor just 10 seconds into the match. So now all he's got left is the bonsai drop. Razor Ramon can't seem to knock Yokozuna back down once he gets to the ring. Zuna finally takes over and applies that ever-loving nerve hold. And oh, that's pretty much the duration of the match. Tons of punching by the bad guy. And all of his comebacks. It's just Razor throwing punches. Because what else are you going to do to Yokozuna? Luckily, Yoko can sell a punch like a motherfucker. I love Yoko selling when he's not going down, but he's wobbling and he's teetering and he's tottering and he's grabbing for nothing. There's nothing in front of him, but he's grabbing at something. He's trying to keep balance. And he finally, finally, after repeated punches, Yokozuna takes a bump. We even go through a commercial break, another nerve hold, more punching by the bad guy and a jumping clothesline by Razor Ramon finally drops Yokozuna yet again. Razor goes up to the middle rope for the bulldog. Kinda. Uh, Yokozuna doesn't really take the bump as fast as Razor does, so it is a middle rope bulldog, but it looks a little awkward. And then the lights begin to flicker, Steve. And it's the Undertaker to ringside with the casket. Remember, he had already exacted revenge on Mabel and for breaking his face, and now it's Yokozuna's return, or Yokozuna's turn uh, for revenge, it would seem, as the Undertaker brings the casket to ringside, and Yokozuna runs off, and he's running all the way out of the arena. And Razor Ramon gets the count out win in 11 minutes. I, I've never seen Yoko run like that before. He had to have been gassed by the time he got back through those curtains. But my Dude, big he issue. He got gassed halfway down the aisle. <laughs> he Poor made it guy. halfway, then he started walking. like He was speed walking at the end. He, he stopped running because, uh, yeah, he was done. It was amazing to see him uh, run like that, though, just for the brief period that he did. I have all kinds of issues with the finish here. We just saw Ahmed do a run-in in the opening match during the Jarrett and Fatu match. 
Same theory here. The Undertaker comes out now and runs off Yokozuna. Another non-finish. Basically the same finish as far as someone interfere, a babyface interfering on behalf, uh, trying to get back at Revenge of the Heel. The bigger issue here is Ahmed ran in and kind of saved Fatu. Jeff Jarrett was in control. He was going for the figure four. Razor Ramon had this match well in hand. It looked like he may have even had Yoko beat, and then The Undertaker comes out. What the hell's going on with that? I guess Razor's not going to question The Undertaker, but I just thought I didn't really care for the finish. Yeah, the finish was very lackluster. I, I was I remember last week when they announced that this was going to be the main event on this week's Raw. I was like, how are they going to get out of this one? Um, how does Razor win this? Because obviously Yoko's on the downturn. He's way too heavy to be reliable, so he's kind of just there. I think they're at the point where they're just trying to get whatever they can out of him uh, until they know they got to pull the plug. So why not give us a match we've never seen? It would have been better two years prior, or at least a year prior. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Not very, uh, not very creative, I would say. That was the word I was looking for. Not very creative finish here at all, especially like you said, we've seen it at the beginning, the first match. Somebody coming in to make the save, so. And it, like you, like you said, it, it just feels off because Razor was in control the majority of the match. Yoko, I mean, yeah, he had the nerve hold, but for the most part, Razor was dominating the match. Uh, he looked really good, and actually did a solid job working the big guy because you know there's no only so much Yoko can do. And I thought Razor put a decent match together with him, and um, yeah, it just didn't make a lot of sense. Especially is Yoko just so? Why did Taker do this? Did he just come out to screw Yoko because he's been Yoko's been messing with him all year? Because this doesn't really go anywhere, from what I remember. Yeah, that's I what I was gonna say. I don't really Yoko remember any payoff anymore. here. Yeah, I don't really remember the payoff here if, if we even get one because it's not very long before Yoko's gonna do a babyface turn. So it's just really odd. I mean, maybe it was originally part of the plan and it and it fell through. I'm not really sure. But yeah, it's just I'm really weird. Vader. I'm assuming Vader made a lot of. <laughs> Caused a lot of changes. They kind of, he kind of just fell in their lap. I know you mentioned that before, where he fell in their lap. And I'm, I'm wondering if that changed some things. Post-match, as Razor Ramon tries to leave the ring, Doc Hendricks stops on the aisle. He wants to talk about that letter that Razor received from Goldust yesterday at the In Your House pay-per-view. Of course, Goldust sent Razor the letter. Or Razor says that it stated that Razor was hot and handsome. And Razor agrees. Goldie is right. Razor is hot and handsome. But he only likes women. So Goldust can do his thing, but not with Razor Ramon. And Doc wants more info because he's a perv and we know how Michael Hayes is. He wants more information. What else was in that letter? What else did that letter say, Razor? Razor says it's not for children to hear. He'll tell Doc in the back, but he's not going to say it on TV. And Vince calls this entire thing appalling. And just wow. Like, I was like, wow. When he, when he, when he called it appalling. He's basically shitting all over the, the homosexual community. Uh, that's appalling that a man would hit on another man. Oh. And so it's just amazing the culture change between what Vince has been saying about Aja Kong and just the, the jokes in general. And now here he's kind of shitting on gold dust. So I, I, I don't know, man. It's uh, definitely something new for sure. It's definitely odd. And, you know, as a, Probably yeah, nine years old. I I was like, "What the hell is this?" Like, I I didn't know what to think of it. It it, it wasn't like it was bad. It wasn't like it was good. It's just I I didn't. I was just thrown for a loop. It was 
uncharted waters for um, me as a fan of wrestling. I've never seen anything like this. I know gimmicks like this existed, um, but I I didn't. I never knew. <laughs> I've never seen it in action. I was like, oh my god. It's just one of those things that made you a little uncomfortable because you just yeah. didn't know. Society was, was just, you know, it was just a, a different society back then, too. I mean, it just really was. Uh, yeah, where we were taught um, by most that being gay was not acceptable uh, to, to, mo- to most degrees. And that, you know, this would be the bad guy. Goldust would be the bad guy in this scenario because he's androgynous. And it's not that Goldust is just portraying gay it's it's the over the topness of the character is what makes him the heel is that he's a creepy creepy uh potential homosexual i think is the is the issue here as goldust is kind of stalking razor ramon yeah a lot of the times like back then like it was hidden it was taboo to be in the open and, and things like that with this and here's this guy <laughs> you know full-fledged like he's acting this way he's showing it he doesn't care so it's like to be honest with you it's probably the first time i've really ever seen it you know and uh it just throws you for a loop 95 is a million times different than what we are in 2020 uh now like i don't know if it would bother me because i'm an adult and i get it i understand but man nine years old and like you said you're taught to think this is bad or you're not you shouldn't be doing this it, like I said, it threw me for a loop, and uh, it's crazy. It, it's I never thought Vince would do something like this, but uh, it, was, it was just wild, man. It really was. Yeah, and you got to go back in time. I mean, you know, the the chant, uh, the F word, the 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 F word, that's the the bad word. Uh, <laughs> the one you don't say on this show. Yes. Right? Um, that used also, to be a chant. You know, that was an acceptable chant by the fans, and at times was led by the wrestler, the babyface wrestlers, to pick on the sissy esque uh, heels at at times. You know, I I go, always go back to Royal Rumble '92. I'm sure it's edited out of the network, but Bushwhacker Butch is on the apron, and he is leading the chant the chant of F get F get, uh, <laughs> just proudly at the genius in the Beverly Brothers. Uh, with the, with the fans getting the kids to chant it with them, so it's a, a different world, you know. So Absolutely. it just it, that's the best way I can describe it. And I gotta say this: I, I know it's a different world, one hundred percent, from nineteen ninety five to two thousand twenty. To this day, though, Steve, I've still never met a human being that resembled anything of like gold dust. So let's just make that very clear: this is a very different human being uh, than just uh, your average uh, uh, homosexual or heterosexual or anything in between oh yeah i i <laughs> you just never know man somebody's probably out there like that thanks their oscar you know yikes <laughs> silence of the lambs <laughs> and uh we'll move on we got one more segment in this show yeah, yeah. so we Let's can close up on. things or, yeah we'll do that <laughs> and it's the uh, the famous tell me a lie video uh, with Shawn Michaels, great video package. If you're talking, if you're taking this as real, as you, as you should, if you're into the storyline, even if you know it's fake, if you're following the storyline with intrigue, this was a great package and maybe the best to that point. Uh, the best, many of the video clips matching the words and the song and the the beat of the song and 
uncharted territory is what I called it earlier, taking a real life situation like Syracuse and making it into an angle, the collapse, the shoot interview with Todd Pettengill last week uh, that Sean did. This video, as we come to the realization, there's no guarantee that Shawn Michaels will come back to the ring. thought this was a great job. I was a huge Shawn Mark from his turn on Janetti in 1992 until probably the fall of 96. And this video back then really, really drew you in. Tell me a lie. Say that you won't go. It really opened your eyes. You finally understood that is he really hurt beyond the storyline? Maybe that collapse was fake, but is he really injured to the point where he he can't wrestle is the question that it puts in your mind. And could he really be done? I thought this was really great stuff. I thought production-wise and, and Vince trying something new, something different, just a, a really good job uh, by my estimation anyway. Yes, I know we've talked about this a little bit. Um, when I, I was, when I was going back and watching the shows, getting ready for the show here, we talked about this because I personally, I, I'm not gonna lie, I didn't, I didn't remember this. I didn't remember this music video, and uh, you kind of made some comments like, how, "How do you forget this?" and things like that, and that's just. So you even questioned my thought process and if I was being honest with myself, like, did I really not remember this? And um, <laughs> I called my friend who I, I watched wrestling with growing up. I've I known him since I was five years old. And uh, I was like, dude, do you remember this video? He's like, what video? I was like, well, Sean collapsed. It happened like maybe three or four weeks later called to tell me a lie. And uh, he's like, dude, I don't I have no idea. And me and him are very similar. In our wrestling and and things like that and we remember stupid stuff and uh but the, like it does it didn't stick out to me and that it's not like infamous to me um i'm not i'm not shitting on the video at all it was a great video and it fits the storyline perfectly and i don't think to this point i don't think they've done anything as good as this video to to further a story right um and uh it was excellent. It really was. But at the same time, I, I, again, I felt like I never bought into it. And it was just, uh, I, I didn't take things as serious. I don't know if it was just me being naive or not really caring. I, I didn't live and die by wrestling. I, I think I just, what I told you, I don't know if I told on this show, but I just watched raw. I didn't turn into the weekend shows. So if I did that and just like lived and died, everything wrestling, you know, um, that's really the only passion I ever had was wrestling, but I just didn't watch every bit that I could. I, I didn't seek it out. I just knew Nitro and Raw was on, and that's kind of what I watched. Uh, the weekends, I was outside at by 9 in the morning, so I didn't even watch TV very much. So um, I, so I only seen it the one time, and that's I think that's the biggest reason why I don't remember it, because I'm sure if I watched the weekend shows, I would have seen it multiple times, and it would have been oh, yeah. hammered home. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, and by that point, I think it was just set in as just muscle memory. But finally seen it on Raw, and they didn't really do it again. I think that's a big reason why it, it doesn't stick out to me. But again, I'm not knocking it at all. It was a tremendous video. Great. I just don't remember it. And uh, the collapse is what I remember. 
I didn't even remember that interview with Todd Patton, y'all, to be honest with you. <laughs> so I just remember the collapse, and that was it. I don't really remember the aftermath, but uh, that's that's kind of how I am with it. It's, it's weird. I, I know I'm different, but um, <laughs> it's uh, that's just the way it is. I, mean, I can't go back and change how I interpreted or took in things when I was nine sure. years old. Sure. <laughs> no, I got you, man. I will say, though, I, I will say, though, this is – I've, I've – said this to myself i don't know if i've ever said it out loud to anybody but i wish i was born you know maybe 10 years younger 10 years earlier than i was that way i would have been able to be i would have been able to live and experience like the hawkamania you know the the wrestlemania boom period i would have been an adult during the adult oriented monday night war and i, I think i would appreciate it a lot more a lot of my viewing like early WWF is just revisionist. It's not live or I don't really have a connection to it past or before WrestleMania seven. So like, I feel like I got cheated out of that a little bit. So I, I wish I was your age when I was watching this because I, I, I guarantee I would appreciate everything a little bit more than a nine year old me would have. So sure, and I can um, go back and say, I wish I was born a little earlier myself to enjoy, you know, more of the territory era. So it's, uh, yeah. y- y- we can't help when we're born. It's but here yeah, we are reliving it now, and that's that's a big deal. So it's really still a cool thing. And segment of the night, Steve, is it the uh, Sean video? Is it DiBiase keeping a straight face as he announces Santa Claus is from the South Pole? Is it the uh, Buddy Landell match, or maybe Yokozuna versus Razor Ramon? A lot of things going on here on Raw. Uh, yeah, I put down Razor and Yoko again. I thought Razor did a really solid match here. I was like, when I first saw the announcement, like, 95, I thought it'd be cool, I'm, I'm sure. But I was like, I, the things that came to my mind was, what's Razor going to do to make this decent? And how are we going to get to the end? And um, I was shocked. I, I thought he did it exceptionally well um, and, and had, had a good match with Yoko. So as, as best as Razor Ramon could have at that point. Um, the, the video itself is probably a really, really close second. But my biggest thing is, his raw has been lackluster for weeks now. Yes, very, yes. I was very, very stagnant. Disappointed. I was very disappointed with the tapings after Survivor Series. I felt like they did nothing outside of that very first show after Survivor Series to further along things. And this show is no different. Very, very boring. I think what happened to a degree was Bill Watts came in before Survivor Series and changed <laughs> up the booking style and made it all very realistic and stuff you could really get into and then it's we're back here in the uh post bill watts era now and it's the uh, back to the vince mcmahon booking i i would like to lump pat patterson bruce pritchard in there but honestly i don't know who was booking what at this point with vince and vince is always the the you know ultimate decision maker is a word we've been using on on the grenade for rick flair now that he took over the book in the nwa in 89 so Vince is, it always has been the ultimate decision maker, as Bill Watts found out. That's why he left so quickly. So, yeah, it's uh, Raw has been very stagnant for weeks on end. And Vince has to know that Nitro's beating him in the ratings, there's no doubt. And they don't have an answer for it. And that's the scary part. So They don't have the talent for it. No. <laughs> I was going to say, they have some nice guys up top. You know, those lower like those high mid carters like razor and diesel all these is the main eventer and taker but after that it just falls off the face of the earth not very good roster to try to get get yourself out of a hole like this 
I feel there's a lot of guys there that have the potential with the right booking, with the right, not just storylines, but just getting them over. Like, there's a lot of guys just yeah. waiting. The, the potential is there. Marty Jannetty has potential. Savio Vega proven when he first came in. He has potential to be over to that semi-main type, that intercontinental type level because he's proven it already at this point, and he kind of resurges here at one point in 1996 as well into that level, that area. So Savio has it. I, I think had they not given Fatu the Make a Difference character, Fatu certainly has the talent to do something. Uh, Triple H proven, and Henry Godwin uh, really coming into his own here during this Triple H feud. So are any of these guys going to main event? No. Well, Triple H will. Are the, the rest of these guys, probably not. But at the same time, I think that you have enough talent there that you could do a little more than what you're doing with them. And that's another issue. They're really not doing anything with anyone right now. Yeah, I agree. I think they're getting ready for that mania push, too. That's another thing that's coming. Segment of the night for me, I'm going to go right along with you. It's Razor and Yoko. It wasn't a whole lot. It was nerve holds and punches. And I'm not going to put over the nerve holds, but Razor looked great out there, as did everything he possibly could with Yokozuna. Yokozuna's selling on the defense, or on the while Razor's on the offense, I should say, really. Just amazing. I just love Yoko constantly selling that, trying to keep his balance until he finally takes the big bump. It means so much. So for as little as he can do right now going into 96, he's still great at what he can do, which isn't much, but still, it was just the dynamic, too, of seeing these two in the ring. Never seen it before. Very cool deal there. Uh, unfortunately, the finish is the finish. Now, that said, I also think that the, the closing music video was a major deal. And again, much like, much like the Medusa uh, segment, I think if you had asked me when the show closed, what was the most meaningful thing to me on the show, I probably would have picked the music video because I think that's when the realization set in that what exactly is going on here? Is Sean really done? Not because of storylines, but because of the the initial injury. Is this more serious than was let on? Is Have they realized that Sean can't continue to wrestle? And so when once the show ended, I'm, probably, I'm pretty sure 1995 me <clears throat> was questioning, am I never going to see Shawn Michaels in the ring again? Which was a big deal to me. He was probably my favorite wrestler in 1995. So that said, I would have probably picked that back then. But here, knowing what I know, it's hard for me to really get into that. Although it's a tremendous video piece. It feels like a completely different production team did this. Because everything lines up perfectly with the words, with the beat, everything. Great video. Great job. If, it, if this is ranking music videos, I'd say job well done. Uh, but here I, I will go Razor and Yoko myself as well. And... The ratings are in. Once again, WCW Monday Nitro sets its all time record this week with a 2.7 and a 4.0 share headlined by randy savage defending the title against the giant despite coming off a pay-per-view show and being live raw faltered to a 2.3 nitro a 2.7 raw a 2.3 with a 3.4 share nitro murdered raw this week in the ratings and rightfully so yeah, I agree. I think what the biggest thing there is I'm assuming people had it on at the start and they saw Medusa, 
<laughs> dropped the belt in the trash can. And they probably thought, well, what the hell's going to happen next? They probably yes. stuck around thinking something else was going to happen. And uh, they got they captured the audience and kept the audience throughout the show. And that, that to me, is probably what happened there. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I couldn't agree more. And the real winner this week, as we pick our own winner, I'm going to go along with the, the mass majority here, the, the ratings, uh, Nitro one. I'm going to pick Nitro as well. Just There were some things on Raw that were good, but there was a lot of things on Nitro that were really good. Yeah, I went with Nitro as well. I was like, with that lineup, there's no way it's not the show of the week. And like I mentioned, Raw's been very mediocre coming out of Survivor Series. There's been... You probably take take one thing from each of these shows the last four or five weeks and put it on one show and you'd have a decent show. Instead, we got five weeks of mediocrity and the ratings are showing it and people are tuning into Nitro. And that'll wrap up this week's episode of Monday Warfare. And next week's episode, there, we're going to cover the weekend or the Mondays. I'm sorry, I get confused sometimes what show we're doing. We're going to cover the Mondays of Christmas and New Year's. So uh, on Christmas, there was no WWF Monday Night Raw. It's WCW Nitro being taped back on the 18th. We're going to cover that episode of Nitro as well as the following week, the first Nitro of 1996, the first Raw of 1996, and that will include the Raw Bowl. And so uh, three episodes of TV are what we're going to cover next week. It's uh, two Nitros, one Raw, Steve. And I want to thank you for joining me once again here in 2020 before we head into 2021 and as Monday warfare heads into 1996. So we're still 25 years ahead. And, uh, yeah, Steve, man, I just really appreciate you being here once again with me and I wish you a happy new year as well. Yeah. Happy new year to you, your family and, uh, everyone else out there listening. I hope you all have a safe holidays, safe new year. (laughs) It can get crazy. I don't know how crazy it's going to be this year, but stay safe. 2020 is weird, so don't do anything too crazy. And, uh, again, it's a pleasure being here, man. I love talking about this stuff, and uh, I learn something new every time, and that's that's what I'm in it for. So uh, thanks for having me. And I want to thank all you guys for continuing to listen, subscribe, download Monday Warfare, the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Head on over to WrestleCopia.com. Check out all the stuff we got going on there. Go over to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's Russell C-O-P-I-A. You can go there. We got all kinds of tiers, 14 tiers that you can subscribe to, including the all access tier, which we've now lowered to $5 for $5. Guys, $5 a month. You can go on there, listen to all of our watch alongs from WCW and WWF pay-per-views. We do right here from 1995, 1996, great complimentary pieces to the Monday Warfare show all the way down to Coliseum video series, uh, Clash of the Champions matches, Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat, Clash of the Champions 6, all kinds of great stuff. And just head on over, though, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Check out that all-access tier. Check out all the tiers. If you want to pay for a higher tier, subscribe to a higher tier, I ain't going to be mad at you. Steve's not going to be mad at you. So I just want to wish everybody out there uh, happy holidays, happy new year, be safe. I'm going to be home with the kiddos. So not necessarily my favorite thing to do on new year's but at least I'll, I'll i'll be safe that way and uh god bless y'all and uh we'll see you again next time on monday warfare the battles within happy new year